And welcome to Pop Screen. We are doing a, the second half of our Best of 2023 special. If you haven't heard the previous half, which covered from January to June, that's available on on the Uncut Network feed. But this is the final rundown, which will end with us revealing exactly what our top tens were. And I've been joined this week, uh, as I was last week, by. Uh, who have I been joined by? I, I had a thing where I was doing everyone in alphabetical <laughs> order and now I've just completely blanked it. James! Hello, James! Good to know I leave an impression. <laughs> uh, by Mike. Hello. Hello. Oliver. Hi. Simon. Hello. And Vincent. Hi, Oppie. I'm here to look into these murders of the dance floor that could be falls, along with my lifelong friend looking for her birth mother, whose job is spider and composed music while finding new homes for abandoned babies. Can't believe Such a good that. intro, you had to do it twice. I uh, had <laughs> a whole week to think of something less weird and it hasn't worked. Uh, <laughs> hey, I've been busy. We'll also be joined throughout this podcast by Rob, Kat and Naomi, who recorded separately. So, Kat, where can we find yourself online? So I am on X, Instagram and Letterboxd at Gizmo Shikari. Um, There's links to all all of my work there. I also have a chaotic podcast with my daughter Aurora called Movies with Mummy, which can be found at all uh, all good podcast outlets. And apparently, I found out recently we're big in South America. So uh, yeah, Ooh. we were number three in Nicaragua <laughs> for like two months. So yeah, we we're, we're big in. That's very cool, <laughs> Naomi. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter as I refuse to call it X uh, at Khaleesi underscore one hundred one. And then you can find me elsewhere online under www.thegeekgoddesses.com. And that's also the same handle on uh, Letterboxd. Yes, and you can find me across all social media as Uncut Robcast. Well, it's it's time. It's July, everyone. It's time for the big one, the much-memed-about box office triumph that everyone was talking about this year. That's right. It's time for Smoking Courses Coughing. Yay! <laughs> Very pleased about this one. Uh, yes, this is definitely one on my list. I'm a huge fan of uh, the French filmmaker Quentin Dupieux, um, otherwise known as the electronic musician Mr. Wazo. Um, mm. I've already talked about this kind of in the uh, July edition of, of last night on the on the Patreon. 
but I'll, I'll pitch it again because uh, this really is a, a delightful film. It follows the tobacco force, benzene, nicotine, mercury, methanol, and ammonia, who are a Power Rangers-style monster fighting team who have lost their team spirit. So they're slavering... Uh, puppet rat boss sends them on a chilled out woodland retreat to go and get their uh, mojo back. What follows is a mostly plotless series of chaotic campfire stories where the characters meet increasingly awful slapstick fates uh, as the world around the tobacco force gets closer and closer to total annihilation. It's certainly the most zany film I've seen this year. Um, One that's probably most committed to getting sick laughs out of you rather than kind of anything else um, or making an actual point. And I guess it's quite fitting because um, Dupier's other film this year is entitled Dali. And it is, of course, about Salvador Dali. And this is as Dada as it gets. So very much for me, not for everyone. Um, my girlfriend was absolutely repulsed by this film. <laughs> so, uh, it, it, it's definitely the, the the biggest rift, I think, of opinion that we've had, uh, maybe maybe in anything. So that's healthy. Yeah, I uh, I can see both sides of it because I really enjoyed that film. But Jesus Christ, that pervy rat puppet! <laughs> what, what what is leaking from his mouth? Is it fairy liquid? Is it is it oh, the no. the xenomorph acid? Like who, who knows? Yeah, uh, and guess except you don't want to guess. No, no, let's not find out ever, please. Um, but yeah, has has, has anyone else seen this one? Uh, I have seen this one. I did quite enjoy it. Uh, I found it, uh, the plotless bit left me a little less engaged than the Tobacco Force stuff. It's just, maybe it's because I'm a kid in the 90s, but the aping Power Rangers bit just tickled me, especially when you got the superheroes whose whole things are essentially promoting smoking, and then behind the scenes one of them's just going, hey, kid, don't smoke. Uh, I quite enjoyed it. Good, good. Glad I'm not alone out there. Mm, absolutely not. Uh, we've also got another smaller film to take stock of before we get onto the Barbenheimer juggernaut, although one that made a pretty big noise at the box office. Uh, it's Talk to Me. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, Barbenheimer to me, I guess. Or Talk yes, to Barbenheimer, yeah. however you want it. The triple bill <laughs> that we were all definitely Yeah, I think it was- and directed by a pair of brothers who are living embodiment of what happens when you give children too much sugar, uh, the Philippou brothers. Because, yes, if you've seen any interviews of them, they have all the energy in all of the non-universes. <laughs> um, that was picked by Liz, Andy, and myself. I usually have a problem with A24 because it's kind of like there's an expectation there and the hype around it. It just none of those movies are out to sort of live off their own sort of back. It's all... It's an A24 movie, so this or so that. But this one, um, really working me. Pretty untraditional tale of possession, all built around this enigmatic porcelain hand that you have to hold in yours to talk to me. You'll see a spirit, and then you let it in. I might have got the mechanics a little skewed there, but you shake hands with this thing, and you let the spirit in. If you leave it for more than 90 seconds, it screws you up. If you leave it less than 90 seconds... It's basically a very thinly veiled parallel for drugs, which is fine. 
But it's just the nihilistic imagery in this. I think it it's really fearless in a way that a lot of Australian movies tend to be. Um, the mother daughter stuff is is great. Uh, the imagery is outstanding. There's a, like a little shot of hell, which is possibly the most disturbing vision of hell I've ever seen in any movie, which is saying quite a lot. And it ends just with the perfect ending. Horrible, depressing, sad, day-ruining ending that I needed to watch cat, um, Red Panda videos on the bus home after watching to pick me up a little bit. But it's the perfect ending for what they're telling. And to come from these two bundles of energetic joy, it's, it was such a shock for me, that one. Talk to me. Because I'm a jaded old lady, I felt that the ending could have gone harder. It could have. But, it, uh... it absolutely could have, but it was right for the movie, I think. I felt it's an interesting way. It didn't necessarily because obviously it came on the problem with films that come on with such a wave of such phenomenal hype is you inevitably watch them and they don't quite measure up. Yeah. The first time I watched it, I thought it was perfectly fine. It is on the second watch, it is a cruel film. It's so a very cruel, cruel, cruel film from, from minute one. And there's a a fascinating undertone of racism to everything as well, because the female lead is you get the the impression that she is uh, Aboriginal, and they are very much. There's a sort of there's a line about I wish you hadn't forced yourself on our family. It very much feels like she is tokenized from minute one, and then the spirits play with that even further. It's it's very good. It's very good. Yeah. It's it's and also I think crucially it's not two and a half hours long. Yeah, it's ninety minutes. It does what it needs to do. And then, then it departs. I think, uh, and then the, the you're right. The iconography of the porcelain hand. The amount of people who have bought that porcelain hand is extraordinary to me. But wow. yes, yeah. fun dinner parties ahead. And the thing I like about it though is they were absolute. They apparently chopped it around studios and said you got to change it. You got to line it up. But they're stuck to their guns. So I respect them immensely for for doing that. Really. Yeah, definitely. It seems to be general opinions. This is probably like the best horror film that came out this year. Um, most people um it is it's a really striking debut it's really visceral genuinely quite scary um really it's a really good hook of effectively teenagers mucking about with a possessed hand sort of thing um it feels it feels the threat feels dangerous it's a, it's a proper threat um of you know, and uh it's just yeah, it's it's full on. Even from the very beginning, like the opening step is like sort of one shot of through a house party that ends horribly. Um, and I'm actually, I think actually, it it feels cynical that they're already doing a talk to me as in a sequel to this. <laughs> but um, I think actually there is scope to see more. So I'm intrigued to see where they go next with it. So yeah, no, uh, yeah, a really good nasty bit of fun. Absolutely, yeah, I, I agree. I think it is the best uh, horror film. <laughs> of the year, unless wishes to be very liberal with the definition of horror film, as one might be inclined to be. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that uh, Talk To Me um, is, I've seen it a couple of times now, and each time it's um, thrilled me um, and chilled me in equal measure. Um, it is, as you say, it's a great debut. It's assured and it's very confident. It is gripping. It is gruesome. It is gut-wrenching. Um, it manages to be both visceral and creepy. Like the point, there are points in it where it's like, is there is there, is there, is there something in that corner? Is there something coming? There's something coming out of that corner, isn't it? Oh shit! And then there are points of like, and now he's back. And oh, holy fuck, what is he doing to himself? Um, <laughs> and yeah, it, and what's interesting is 
thinking about something we spoke about on a previous episode, being tired of possession, uh, sorry, of grief horror. Well, it is another grief horror, mm-hmm. but, I, it, man, but it's not solely that. It integrates that with, um, I think, a need for family as well. Plus, of course, yeah, and it manages to be quite witty at times, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got some nicely observed um, family and friendship dynamics, which I guess is key because that means you care about these people when horrible things start happening to them. You can talk to me about talk to me as much as you like. <laughs> Very good. It's also part of a nice thread of like this Cobweb and Megan of just like being really fucking mean to kids. <laughs> <laughs> just getting them through <laughs> the worst things imaginable, which I'm uh, absolutely here for. <laughs> that was the theme for horror in 2023. To hell with Fuck the children. Kids. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it also forms an interesting um, pairing with Pearl and X as well, because I hear that they have shot footage or enough footage for another feature, um, oh, precisely about that prologue, which is all shot, oh, yes. uh, all shot on cell phones. That's very interesting. So yeah. we might see that one day. I doubt it will have as much weight as uh, <laughs> Pearl did. Because it, it does sound more like a like a comfortable B side than anything else, but I would I would really like to see that. Yeah, was it because it's still they came from YouTube? They made a lot of like YouTube short for yeah, of course, Raka Raka. That's, that's yeah, so that's yeah, so it sounds like that follow up would be along those lines. But still, I want to see it. I I caught it at Sundance, so I caught it before any of the hype, and I I thought it was fine. I there's a pacing issue. I really love all of the stuff at the party, and then it goes to hospital. And it lost me. I've seen it two or three times. And every single time it goes to the hospital, my brain shuts down and I have to spend the next half an hour fighting a nap until the ending when I'm awake again and I enjoy it. So I think that's that's more personal. I think I described it in, I think I described it in my review as like bodies, bodies, bodies uh, meets flatliners by the way of Evil Dead. And I think there's some, there's some elements where they're trying to, firm them up firm those elements together that don't quite work for me but you know i love that people are talking about horror because that's what we want you know right we're grasping the barbenheimer nettle uh now <laughs> it is barbenheimer time and let's let, let's start off with um let's start off with the more existentially disturbing of the two films let's start with barbie <laughs> i knew you were going there knew you were going there um <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, I like that starting with Barbie because I did do Barbenheimer on the day. Um, nice. Of, and I saw Barbie at about 9.30 in the morning um, on the 21st of July. Um, and then, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, commitment, I know. Um, and then I saw Oppenheimer that afternoon. This is where I will say the reason Barbie is the highest grossing movie of 2023 is not because it was the best movie, but it had the best marketing. And this was marketing which Mm. suggested this is something very smart. Is this a movie about a toy? No. No, it isn't. This is a movie about a cultural icon, which is what Barbie is. You know, Mm. on the one hand, is Barbie a fashion doll? Is this a, you know, a child's toy? Is it a commercial product? Yes, absolutely. But bear in mind, this is one that has been around at least since the 1950s and has been and has adapt, been adapted, has been updated over the decades and remained popular. So 
to simply and there have been you know animated Barbie movies which were as I I've never seen them but I believe they were fairly straightforward so yeah it's Barbie having some adventure or other hmm. but Greta Gerwig's Barbie and I was at high expectations because I've loved uh, Gerwig's previous films I think Lady Bird is fantastic Little Women is a masterpiece and Barbie is a masterpiece as well it is ingenious it is satirical it is extremely self-aware um, it's highly postmodern, um, but never in a way that felt, you know, winky or wanky for that matter. Um, <laughs> it's an extravaganza of pastel colours, as Graham said, existential crises and the contradictions of identity. And it's doing insightful commentary without ever feeling didactic or too smart for its own good. Um, it is, I think, yeah. It is a film of our time, and yet it is a film that I believe will stand the test of time and will be looked back on. I still don't know. I mean, it's. I love that people were just flat out asking everybody about Barbenheim, Barbenheimer, and the only one that's a little bit snotty about it is Christopher Nolan. Everyone else is like, yeah, this was great, that everyone went out at the same <laughs> yeah. time. I mean... I just keep thinking of the alternate universe in which we got Amy Schumer's version of Barbie. I mean, Barbie should never have worked, ever, in a million years. And I think it works because Greta Gerwig understood entirely what film she was making and she fought for the scenes that mattered. You have Margot Robbie doing this beautiful performance as stereotypical Barbie, trying to understand what it means to be human. You have America Ferreira, uh, which I kind of love that she's just playing yeah. a mum. She doesn't have superhero powers. She doesn't... She's not brilliant at her job. By the end of it, her life has not demonstrably changed. She's just a mum with a desk job yeah. who just, you know, becomes embroiled in this insanity of Barbies being real. Um, and I love that. And obviously she gets the big speech, which is great, but I feel and will be performed in auditions for millennia to come. And she is fantastic in it. But I kind of loved that she was just so very ordinary. It says very important, significant things about gender, about gender relations, um, about as there's a fantastic speech America Ferreira has in it about it is impossible to be a woman. But here's the thing, right? Here we are, six guys uh, talking about it. And I will say, I am, you know, I, I never played with Barbie. Um, I don't think I'm what you might have, well, okay, I probably am a target audience because I'm a film nerd and a like a cultural theorist. So it's gonna, it was kind of playing to my strengths anyway. It was singing my tune and I was probably predisposed to enjoy it. However, I will say aside from all of the intellectual enjoyment I got from it, it's also really sweet and really funny <laughs> and really warm. And yeah, absolutely one of the best movies of the year. And <laughs> and, and the argument uh, saying coming out of it, oh, well, because Barbie was so successful, we should have more films based on toys. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> allow more, I will say on a basic level, please allow more women filmmakers, give them the budget to make a large scale movies mm -hmm. because these are, you know, storytellers who have been shut out too too long and have so many interesting stories to tell. Mm. Yes, I quite liked Barbie. 
Yeah, I, I, it reminded me that there is nothing, for, for all I enjoy a lot of sort of surrealist and abstract films, there is nothing so weird as seeing someone execute a really silly idea with practical effects on a Hollywood budget. When you see Barbie Land for the first time, you your immediate thought is that someone has spiked your Pepsi. <laughs> it's such a bizarre sight. And, and it never lets up. I think Greta Gerwig is a generationally significant director. It's like Vincent said, well, am I in the target market for it? I think if you're a millennial who's having a slow, nervous breakdown, you're in the target market for Greta Gerwig films. So I loved it, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I just... It's probably the most fun I had in the cinema, and like yeah, like you were saying, I was just amazed at how weird it is in the Mm. mainstream Barbie film, and it's so odd. Um, And I I just I loved it for it. Yeah, it's got to be funny, and I I I know there's perhaps a not maybe not a problem, but (laughs) an issue with like going oh Ryan Gosling was my favorite thing, but he was my favorite thing in the film. I know it's about Barbie, but I think it was an incredibly good comedy performance yeah. um, ways is sublime and just and I mean he is a brilliant brilliant comedic genius he always has been the nice guys is one of my favorite films and I feel in this Greta just allowed him to let his you know comedic juices fly the dream ballet sequence is phenomenal but it's all great I mean all the line readings you know I, I lost interest in the patriarchy when I realised it wasn't about horses. <laughs> Just incredible, and he's been do, having such a good, such he's he's been very clever on the promo tour because he wants the Oscar nomination, but he knows he's not going to win because Downey is. So he's doing this very fine line of campaigning, but not campaigning. He's doing the bit of stick where you can't say anything about Margot Robbie. Otherwise, he puts his fingers in his ears and says he won't hear anybody say anything bad about Barbie. It's very, very funny, clever. When he when he was at the BFI recently, and I took about 750 pictures of him, I saw that his necklace was a little horse for Ken. He's very, all of it is very clever. He's, and you know, bringing out the Christmas EPs. I mean, he's a brilliant actor and he's he really always been is. brilliant, but yeah. I think he is... I feel like the only the only slight downside is I feel he's so brilliant in a way. I won't be surprised if he gets an Oscar nomination and Margot Robbie doesn't, which would be justice for Ken, but not for Barbie. Mm. But it is a wonderful film. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I listen to the soundtrack a lot. I think it's a really savvy move of getting Dua Lipa in your films. Like Dua Lipa, just do a Dua Lipa song that's vaguely tied into the themes of the film uh, and it's a banger of a song uh, yeah just so much fun and one that I definitely like could be I'm sure could easily rewatch again and again because it's just a lot of fun and and, and Margaret Robbie is very good she does a very good job I like um, the plasticity like the way she runs and the bit where she's like lying on the ground and she's um, rolling around in a plasticky way which sounds ridiculous but it makes sense when you see it um, yeah everyone knows exactly what sort of film they're in and Mm. It's it. It's yeah. It's just really, really fun. Mm. It has a brilliant I... Bryden jump scare as well. Yes, I to see that. Yes, genuinely a jump scare. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. I also did Barbenheimer on the Saturday. I did it the opposite to Vincent though, where I started ah. with the three-hour Chris Nolan film and then went for the more existential yet upbeat fair afterwards um um 
I have seen Barbie twice and I loved it, but I think the reason it's not in my top top 10 is because upon rewatch, the Will Ferrell scenes just dragged for me a bit. It felt too much like they went to Lego movie and went, okay, let's include his businessman more than necessary. Sure. But he's got to be part of the emotional final act. And it's just for me, those bits just kind of made me want to return to what Barbie and Ken were getting up to because Mm -hmm. This is one of the best production designs and costumes used in film I've seen all year. And I I just thought it was a really imaginative way to deal with, uh, let's be honest, a, a well-established IP for a massive summer blockbuster. And you know what? How many films can you say contain both John Cena and Rob Brydon and have a callback <laughs> to the f- infamous Cochrane Ken? Yes. <laughs> I must have missed that one. I'm gonna have to go through it again just to see that. <laughs> Definitely, yes. Uh, but the second half of that double bill, as James and Vincent have mentioned, is Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, which I mean, for all it, its box office will be slightly overshadowed by Barbie. Also, it's staggeringly bloody well for a three-hour movie that is such a downer. <laughs> and nearly at a billion yeah. now, isn't it? Nearly, very what? close, nearly. yeah. Nearly. And it's about to be released in Japan after mm. much sort of Ooh. discussion let's, around. Let's see if that pushes it over. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, you're absolutely right, so, Graham. It's um, remarkable that a three-hour biopic that largely consists of men talking in rooms has mm-hmm. proved to be such a hit um and partly this may be down to it becoming part of this cultural phenomenon um you know the the movie event of 2023 turned out to be barbenheimer and that's not something i think that was planned the two films being released on the same day um i think indicated that warner brothers and universal figured these weren't going for the same audiences so they wouldn't be competing well who could have guessed they wouldn't compete they would reinforce each other um mm-hmm. and you know the again going back to the marketing the whole uh, thing about seeing um killian murphy and christopher nolan getting tickets for barbie and then greta gerwig and margot robbie getting tickets for oppenheimer probably helped um so it is a remarkable thing now I went again. I went into Oppenheimer short a few hours after seeing Barbie, um, seeing you know, Oppenheimer in IMAX with very high expectations. Christopher Nolan is one of my favorite directors. I am that type of film nerd. Um, and uh, I've never seen a Nolan film I didn't enjoy. Um, some I've liked more than others. And I think Oppenheimer is definitely up there. I think it's among his best. I think it is up there with Memento and The Dark Knight and Inception. It is, But it's important to note, of course, this is not... While it, it is easy to overstate um, and reduce a movie to its director, because there is so much going on in Oppenheimer that I think it's important to consider that, um, the different elements to it. Here's the thing that I think is most striking... And what now to be cynical, one can certainly see Oppenheimer as it's Chris Nolan making another attempt at an Oscar. Dunkirk, as a World War II film, was very much that. And this is kind of a World War II movie as well. But 20th century historical movies tend to get, 
you know, awards attention. So I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with biopics. I don't like the fact that they tend to dominate the Oscar conversation and dominate the film conversation to the extent that they do. And I think what makes this quite so different is that it's Killian Murphy in the lead who is traditionally not someone who likes interviews or anything else. So we haven't had two years' worth of him talking about how he you know, dreamt and slept Oppenheimer. He basically just gives interviews where he says things like, what did you do during the director, the writer's, you know, actor's strike? I sat at home and ate cheese. This is the level that you're going to get from Killian. He's not going to be sitting there like Bradley Cooper in Maestro talking about how Belinda Bernstein came to him in a dream. Um, Killian just got the phone call from Christopher Nolan asking him to do it. And six months later, he did it. But it is, it is a beautiful film. It is three hours long. I don't think you feel it. I have seen it twice now at the cinema. At no point during it have I looked at my watch. It splits it into two timelines where we have Oppenheimer assembling the Manhattan Project and testing the bomb. And then the aftermath, which is when Oppenheimer was stripped of his security clearance, thereby basically embarrassing him and rendering his career effectively useless because he no longer had the security access he needed to gain the respect. And the way that they portray this is by way of a kind of a hidden courtroom scene with Jason Clark as the main person, uh, Jason Clark and Tony Goldwyn, as the people interrogating him about his communist ties in the wake of McCarthyism. Killian is extraordinary i mean he's been my favorite actor for years he is extraordinary on stage as well i saw him something called uh breathe is the thing with feathers just possibly one of the best theatrical performances i've ever seen he is phenomenal as oppenheimer he lost an absolute ton of weight in order to be able to portray him but again we've not had stories about his diet regime he's just he needed to lose weight so he did and he's brilliant in it he's so so good uh i loved Emily Brunt, uh, Emily Blunt, sorry, as his wife, Kitty. There's a thing in biopics that they call the phone wife. So if you think of Rita Wilson in uh, the, the, the Tom Hanks film, where everything goes, goes wrong, and also uh, Claire Foy in First Man, where these are the wives that sit at home by the phone waiting for the husband to hear that things are, are great. And I had assumed from the trailers that that was going to be Emily Blunt's role. But actually what I loved about this was that she was so involved playing this very, very sort of adult, very complex woman who was clearly brilliant, but also an alcoholic, who clearly loved her children, but also clearly not that great as it. Uh, very, well, maybe she wasn't as happy as he was about all the various different affairs that he was having. Uh, he was, Oppenheimer was a fuckboy, which I did not know until I watched this and read about it afterwards. He was having affairs with everybody. Oppenheimer, I think of as an anti-biopic for a couple of reasons. Biopics are typically about, in scare quotes, great men. Mm. And you could certainly have done Oppenheimer as a movie about a great man. But it isn't. It's not about a man being great. It is about a man doing things that are kind of out of his control. Um, and... I have talked with, I've seen, I've heard some responses to the film from people saying, oh, I can't believe that Oppenheim is trying to make you feel sorry for him. And saying that, <laughs> yes, oh, he feels guilty. Yes. Isn't that terrible? Considering <laughs> all the death and destruction he caused. I'm like, mm, I feel you're kind of missing the point here. Because, yes, that is an element, an element to the film. Uh, but it's doing that 
as a demonstration, I think, of, as the tagline said, you know, the world changes. And this is the other reason I say it's this anti-biopic, because it is not about a great man. It is about a man who did something that was significant, but not necessarily great. But what it also does is it is such a, it is a literally a broke, it is a film of something that is broken. It is presenting something broken because of its very jagged, impressionistic narrative. Now, Christopher Nolan has always been one who plays around with narrative structure, Mm. but it's Remarkable, I think, that in the case of Oppenheimer, we are cutting back and forth in time. There are two ostensible um, narrative threads called fission and fusion, and one in colour, one in black and white, but we don't follow these chronologically. We're going back and forth all the time. And I feel that that is using the style of the film to express the idea, the, the notion of the world going to pieces because the release of the atomic bomb was you know the great the most destructive force ever unleashed at its time and it's showing that it has literally blown things apart so what we've got here i think we have a chain reaction of theme and narrative and character and they collide and accelerate and using kind of a physics metaphor here yes in, in this harrowing and discordant detonation of science and legacy and hubris, invention and regret. It is a film where the style is expressing the substance and it ends as, you know, on this enormous downer, um, as, you know, Graham said, you know, spoiler, <laughs> I suppose, um, of, you know, saying that I wonder if we destroyed the world. Well, yes. Maybe we did, and we have throughout this um, image of the earth and fire spreading across it. And ever since its first appearance on screens, the mushroom cloud has been an incredibly powerful way of expressing destruction and doom. And here we have that being used in a way that feels, despite being so stylish, it also feels grounded. Um and again, exploding the the myth of a great man and indeed the forced chronology of history. History got, maybe history got broken when we set off an atomic bomb and the after effects we still feel today. Breathe. Yeah, does anyone have anything to add to that? <laughs> I'm comfortable if the answer is no, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, went off a bit there. <laughs> I, I I think that's a wonderful this film's the bomb on, on the film. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Drop your mic, James. There's what yeah, more I was going to say. I, I, I can't follow that now. I can't follow that. But I think the main thing, apart from you know the sheer technical feat of having black and white IMAX cameras, and the Trinity test sequence is extraordinary. It is the tensest thing you have ever seen on screen. It is incredible. And the sound design is phenomenal. And the score by Ludwig Göransson is incredible. But it has one of the strongest supporting casts of the year. Yeah. I mean, you could make a case for best supporting actor for any of them. 
I think Robert Downey Jr. will take it, and he deserves to. He is brilliant. His character is just this study in petty, small, bureaucratic vindictiveness, and he just embodies him so perfectly. This is not Robert Downey Jr., the megastar, looking at you. This is a small man who feels slighted by Oppenheimer and refuses to let it go. But then you've got Matt Damon being brilliant. You have Alden, who... Uh, suffer quite a great deal of public humiliation about their Han Solo film. Kind of finally getting his second wind and his just desserts as as people recognise him for such a really good actor that he is. You've got Josh Hartnett kind of making a little bit of a comeback. You have Benny Safdie, who has decided he wants to act now instead of direct. Mm. He's phenomenal throughout. Then you have David Crumholtz, who is just brilliant in it. I mean, I, I'm old enough that I still remember him as the person that knifed Carter and Lucy in ER before going on to do the TV series Numbers. But he's great in this. He's really, really brilliant. It is, I mean, it is a long film, but it's a film where you do not feel the pace, I think it is. You do not feel its length. Same as, same as Killers of the Flower Moon. It is a fantastic film, a fantastic achievement for Christopher Nolan. Um, a shame that it's a biopic, but it is mm. it is a towering film and an extraordinary performance from Killian Murphy. No, um, that, yeah, that's a really wonderful um, take on it. I, I just wish I felt it more than I did. I think it's all very impressive. I just, it doesn't hold that um, emotional uh, weight for me that quite a lot of other people have, have, have found um, in it. I think... At least the first time I saw it, I was trying to uh, grasp at the narrative threads after the uh, detonation of the bomb uh, at the end of the second hour. I think the final hour of the uh, two hearings running alongside one another kind of threw me off um, a tad. But watching it again and knowing the story literally front to back now, um i think i think i got a lot more out of it but uh it's it's a film i admire a lot but it's it's not a film i i love particularly um it's still quite high up on my list actually it's it's uh it's in between 10 and 20 rather than uh uh any anything below but uh i th- i think it's impressive i just think it's just a little bit cold it's got an impressive amount of nuance in it. like like Richard was saying it's not a simple thing of you sympathize with Oppenheimer or you hate him it, mm-hmm. it it treads that really nicely I think I think I, I, I really like your argument of it being an anti-biopic I, for me I felt a bit there were a few biopic tropes in there that sort of put me off a bit like I felt like the way Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh's characters particularly felt very much like they're there to tell us more about Oppenheimer rather than be characters in their own right but um but regardless that's still yeah an impressive feat and a, a, a really incredible in the IMAX as well which I, which I also mm-hmm. saw it in so um, did I the counter-programming that Netflix put out besides them was my next pick. That is uh, Le Clone Tyrone, which I believe uh, debuted at Sundance, one of the pickups from there, and one of the early festivals in the air, at the very least. Um, that's a directorial debut by Joel Taylor. And this is sort of a sci-fi about the conflict at the heart of America with a specific focus on the black communities in America. Um, the setup is... Um, John Biega is sort of a drug dealer heavy. He's got interactions of a pimp played by brilliantly. Jamie Foxx does outstanding grotesques. And after that interaction, John Biega dies. But 
a little bit down the line, he turns up again. And what turns out is this is basically a little town that the American government are running as a plan to basically make sure that everybody gets along nicely. But it's done in a sort of very deeply, darkly satirical way, which sort of recalls movies like Sorry to Bother You or Blind Spotting or things like that. And when black genre cinema gets the chance to really say what they really think, it's very, very rarely not worth the time. And this is done with such sort of a flair for eccentricity when you match it with that sort of a very pointed satire. I think it's one of these movies that Netflix just slept on. I mean, they sleep on everything really, don't they? They just start to upload stuff and they don't promote it. But I think this one could have... It's got a cult that could potentially grow from this one. It has that sort of audience ready to find it. But Netflix will never allow it to be found because Netflix be Netflix. No, I think it's it's been in the... Tre- I think it's been in the trending section ever since it was released. Hmm. So you're right that Netflix doesn't... Netflix doesn't do promotion except for the stuff that it has seriously sunk money into. Yeah. And even then, I mean, only, I mean, with Rebel Moon, it's be pretty much because it had to, because it knew the reviews that were kind of yeah. about to come out for it. But it just kind of lets things find its audience. I mean, when I looked at there, because they've now been forced into releasing the reports, what was fascinating to me was how much of their programming is foreign language programming, but also how much of the stuff that tends to dominate has had zero promo. I mean, by far the most watched thing on Netflix for the past six months, which had zero promotion, was The Night Agent. That just came out of nowhere. And that one had... Well, that, but that's the thing. Audiences, you're right. Thing audiences find themselves on Netflix, hmm. and I guess whether I mean Lock and Key had a phenomenal amount of viewers, but I guess it was just too expensive. So there's all these, you know, dark arts behind what programming yeah. decision making they got made. But they Decline Tyrone has definitely been in the trending section since it yeah. dropped. So hopefully it will get its just desserts in Absolute time. Terrible timing for it being released. The same sort of week as Barbenheimer. I mean, who could have predicted that that blew up in the way it did? But still. Terrible timing, yeah. unfortunately. Um, moving to August, um, a romantic comedy that I, Liz vouched for, um, Red, White and Royal Blue. I haven't seen it. I know the under- I know the concept of it. It's somebody falls in love with basically a Will's character, isn't it? It's the member of the royal family. Mm. It's a queer romance between a member of the royal, what? young member of the it's royal family. It's something to do with the American president and... as well. I think it's like the president's son and the Prince, I think. Yeah, this was chatting about. I know that it was a it's a young adult book, and you. I'm not into book talk, but I know that you mess with all of that at your peril, and it was much loved and very popular. And I believe that the film went did very well with its target demographic. Mm. Uh, it's on Amazon, I understand. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but if you, I'm sure that if you are part of its demographic, you were probably well all over it. Absolutely. Of course, after the Barbenheimer, we had the other big movie event of the year, which was the SAG-AFTRA strike, which made August a pretty good place for smaller independent films. And we're going to look at one of them next, our first release from August, is uh, Christian Petzold's A Fire. That's me again. I just didn't didn't want to mention anything about Barbie Oppenheimer because I consciously knew that this was the film that was coming next. So 
this was uh yeah really 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 love this film um if i was if i was to do a list of american go by american release dates which i have had to do for a different website um this is 100 percent number one for me i'm not a complete christian pet sold i haven't seen a loads of films i've definitely seen i've definitely seen some um mm. but i haven't seen you know i don't i haven't seen all of them or uh, you know i've seen less than five um but yeah i really love this one um it's a great mixture of eric roma style comedy with classic christian petzold thriller tense tense tension um to it uh it very often goes between comedy and thriller almost in the same scene. If anyone doesn't know, the film is about a, uh, a writer who's trying to write the follow-up to his first novel and goes to the northern beaches of Germany to uh, hide away and write it, um, but is distracted by friends and mysterious women. Um, it sounds a bit like Infinity Pool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it is. Much, much less... Much more normal than Infinity Pool. Of course. Um, but, the, but, the, but interestingly enough, I, when I watched Infinity Pool, I did, did think that this film does many of the many of the elements of being a writer, being like, you know, basically a film about how writers are kind of awful. <laughs> or, you know, they can become very awful when they are trying to make something. Um, this film is basically about that as well. Um, but it's very funny at times. The main character is like this kind of like bumbling, kind of uh, very miserable person um, who is also terrifyingly relatable. Um, there's, a, there's a scene where he like sits on the beach and he's like wearing jeans and like a hoodie. And uh, I, don't know, I found a very relatable moment because I also <laughs> always where very many like loads of layers even when it's like roasting hot um so <laughs> found myself drawn to him it's important to be seen by me yeah. India, isn't it yeah uh, and he doesn't go swimming either but he like refuses to go swimming which is also something i find myself doing so um yeah you kind of uh, you know he's also just he does this thing where he will like kind of lash out at someone and, and kind of and, and shout at them or get annoyed at them and then a few minutes later realizes what he's done it was was not very nice and becomes very horrified at himself. Um, yeah, it's just very good. It's very funny. It's very interesting. It's not got, you know, the, the, the main theme between all the films I'm picking are basically that there's not much story to it. It's, it's not particularly very plot heavy. It's much more about his interactions with the various people he meets. Um, but it's also very tragic. It, can, it can becomes a tragedy, but it's also very funny. And um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a film that's probably had the strongest impact long lasting impact on me this year um i'd really recommend watching it i don't actually think it's so i thought it was a movie film for a long time but it's not actually a movie film i don't know where yeah. it's streaming but i think you can like rent it i because I, I did want to see it. i remember it was it's by mr winners and cinemas but um so i, I definitely will i definitely plan to get on it yeah i think it's renting everywhere yeah. bfi player apple tv but don't think it's on anywhere to stream which is unfortunate but it is very good i'd highly recommend it and on the cat with the passenger. Yeah, she's talking about Cat Garner again. This is this is used 
I was about to say this. This is your little your your best bud. Now I saw another review of this the other day that said it was phenomenal. So, so it's directed by Carl Smith, this. who did The Ruins and Swallowed. It's got a really awful opening, like ten minutes, uh, wherein uh, Carl Gallner's Benson and Johnny Birchold's Randy work at a fast food restaurant. Randy is kind of the butt of the joke. He's being bullied by some work colleagues. Benson snaps goes to his car gets a shotgun uh comes in blows everybody away apart from randy who he takes on the run with him and uh in the course of a day the two bond over trauma from from their past so when when randy was uh in like first or second grade he uh, saw his teacher lose an eye and he has been traumatized by that for life. And he has got very introverted and stiff and reluctant to interact with the world. Benson, we find out through the course of the film, had his own trauma as a child. But he has gone the opposite way. He is very aggressive and anti the world. And um, it's just about these two broken men connecting, really. It's a really oddly emotional film, despite the really uncomfortable opening opening act um johnny and kyle are phenomenal in it um kyle has an exceptionally fluffy green cardigan that he wears which everybody covets now um <laughs> which is a really weird thing to say um but yeah it's it's one of those films i don't want to say too much about it's a road movie which i love it's you know about a relationship between these two characters um kyle and johnny play off each other incredibly well it's another like i think the last four or five films that kyle gowner has done you know dinner in america mother may i this strange darling have all been exceptional all very different from one another and this is just proof again that the guy knows how to pick a script and if you've seen anything on social media between Johnny and Kyle. Johnny is the biggest Kyle Gellner fanboy to the point of they did an Instagram live together. And while they were doing Instagram live, Johnny was playing Kyle's back catalogue on his TV. So he could look at Kyle. He could look at him <laughs> on the computer Aww. and also on the telly. Uh, it's the yeah. sweetest thing. Um, but yeah, the passenger is heavy, but I loved it. I've seen it a couple of times and I'm itching to write a really in-depth essay about it, which I bored Kyle to tears with, like, my musings on his character. Um, so somebody needs to let me write it because I, yeah. you know, <laughs> he needs a break from it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hire cat. On a massively different note, uh, August also saw the release of Joyride. <laughs> oh, Joyride, I actually saw in... I saw that in July at a preview, um, so mm. I suspected that's what it would be, um, but was, you know, abs but I found it absolutely delightful. When I was thinking about what were my top movies of the year, I thought, well, it's ten I tend to go for quite serious stuff, um, but it is, so when I, and, it, and I think that's because it's quite easy to make me laugh. Um, so if I see a comedy that, not only makes me laugh consistently throughout, but also manages to surprise me and offer some, you know, a genuine message I can get on board with and also be moving and creative, then I think that's something to applaud. Joyride is gloriously funny. It is supremely warm. It is fabulously filthy. <laughs> and it is wonderfully progressive. 
Um, this is a road trip movie, as the name implies. It's concerned with friendship, identity, and finding your place. And something that uh, James and I talked about in our podcast earlier this year was the idea of immigrant stories, um, which we'll come back to again. And Joyride is a wonderful, I think, re um, expression of an immigrant experience, um, which you know I, don't, I know nothing about, you know, being an immigrant, um, and yeah, I probably never will. Uh, but that. To, but cinema is has is been as described by the great um, film critic Roger Ebert as an empathy machine, and Joyride is a perfect example, I think, of being able to put something on screen that even if you've got no experience of it, you can empathise with it, and along the way you're going to have a whole bunch of laughs and quite a few moments of saying like, "Oh my God, they actually did that." <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I didn't laugh at anything else as much as I did at Joyride, but at the same time, I also came out feeling like I'd been on a really fun road trip with a bunch of nice people. Um, and, you know, I think that's actually a, a worth a, a, something worth pulling out because quite often comedies especially present characters who are very funny but are also kind of horrible and you think, no, I, I'm glad those people are fictional, never hang actually spend time with them. But in the case of Joyride, I could have quite happily spent time in reality with those people. And yeah, with those with the four women in that, uh, yeah, wonderful film. And I really want to see it again. It's not currently streaming unless you um, rent it. So maybe I'll just have to rent it because it was that much fun. Um, moving into September, we'll run through these quick because when it comes to October, we've got a lot of horror to run through. But the first two, Cobweb, which was picked by Liz and Kim, and then Saw X, which was picked by Kim. So Cobweb, they, I mean, they just could not have screwed up the release of Cobweb more if they tried. It should have been released in October. It is a film that you, when you put it on, you can practically smell the pumpkin. It's, uh, I think it's great. I think it's going to be our, a Halloween staple for years to come. You have uh, the... The guy, Anthony Starr, who is Homelander in The Boys, playing the patriarch of this incredibly odd family, him and his wife, his wife who's permanently terrified. And their son is convinced that there is something in the walls and they keep telling him that there's not anything in the walls. And this is just, frankly, incredibly bad parenting and poor life choices on their part. And then things go quite badly wrong from there. And it's by the gentleman who uh, wrote and directed Marianne, which is a fantastic French horror series on Netflix that everybody should catch up with if they haven't already. It was cancelled on a cliffhanger, frustratingly, but I think works perfectly well as a one and done on its own. It's a great film. It's really enjoyable. It's uh, it's certainly one of the stronger big budget horrors of the year. They just completely cocked up the release utterly. It should have been. It was released in the US, I think, in August, for God's sake. And I think it had like a two-week theatrical window before it went straight to VOD and then was released in September in the UK. I don't know what was going on in some distributors' heads this year. They've made some truly baffling choices. They yeah. also released Haunted Mansion in the US around the same time. Again, baffling, baffling choices. Yeah. It should have been released in October and pushed as the Halloween film it is. I think people will come to really love it as a Halloween staple. Hmm. And as for Saw, well, it was just a bit silly, wasn't it? Because I just saw it as super long and so, just a bit dark. Saw is it's my it's my horror franchise of choice. It was the one where I was old enough to see all of them in the cinema and 
before each new Saw film, I would spend the days preceding watching one a night. It was a Halloween tradition when they used to release at Halloween that me and my mum would always go and see it together. So it's got a lot of memories. And Saw X is technically Saw 1.5. So it's set between the first and the second one. So you've got John Kramer back from the dead and Amanda Young back. Poor Shawnee Smith has, she's had work done and Amanda's once very expression expression-filled face is lacking so kind of a letdown for Amanda. I mean the problem is she's she's older and she's put on a little bit of weight not much weight just a little bit and of course they just put her in the worst wig imaginable they actually could have put her in a different hairstyle because Amanda had different hairstyles they didn't have to have her in the pixie cut and it just makes it so obvious and it's just one of these things you can't it's like you can't act your way out of it. You can guarantee Shawnee looked at herself in the mirror and was like, <laughs> and there's just like no coming back from it. I feel bad for her that they made that but creative Tobin, choice. But Tobin I Bell really gets his time to shine. You know, it's you're getting to sort of see the man behind the murderer to an extent. And yeah, I think like as a devout yeah, Saw fan who on my daughter's first day of school binge watched like four of them back to back because I could do it in six hours because they're all short uh, yes I'm going to mainline <laughs> saw like four five six and seven why wouldn't I like do something else with my day um but yeah for saw fans saw x is is great for those who are sort of on the fence with it it's probably not going to do a great deal for you um closing out September is a cat twofer the first of which is uh, the creator Yes, so the creator is from director Gareth Edwards, whose debut feature Monsters is incredible and was made for like five grand or something ridiculous. Um, He then got sucked up into the studio machine, did a Godzilla film, did a Star Wars film, but now he's back doing uh, original content and the creator is about man versus AI, but it's a really emotional story, Uh, so... John David Washington's character is tasked with finding the AI secret weapon, which happens to be in the body of a child. And again, we're into father-daughter drama. And I basically bored my eyes out for most of this film. And it's the Terminator, it's the third Terminator film that we should have got, I think is was my feelings when I came out of it. It's he to me, Edwards feels very much like a, a younger James Cameron. And I think this film highlights that more than anything else that he's done. Cool. It's nice that he's got that emotional car because he always felt like that was missing in his studio movies. Very good technical exercises, but the heart wasn't Again, there. I sent my husband to watch it after I watched it and he was just a broken mess. He can't see anything with fathers and daughters in anymore without, yeah. <laughs> without breaking down. And, <laughs> and this one... it. Gemma uh, Gemma Chan's in it as well as um, John David Washington's um, former former wife, and she has a speech in it that brought me to tears. And I was like, "Oh hell, Neil is not going to get on with this." And sure enough, he sort of he came back uh, an absolute wreck. So it's yeah, lots of yeah. you know, I've I've cried a lot in the cinema this year. I'm assuming the next one has that sort of legacy to it as well, which is uh, Past Lives, the second part of that. Yeah, so that's another one that I I cried through. I am not a rom-com girl at all. I am a sci-fi, action, horror person. Rom-coms bore me me to tears. Um, 
but past lives I watched because people people were saying good things about it and it's not really a rom-com it's a it's a drama about uh the the one that got away I think we all sort of have that person in life that you you lost touch with that you sort of look back on and go oh what if we hadn't and it starts off in Korea with these two school children who uh, they clearly like each other. They go on this really sweet date. But then she moves to America pretty soon after they lose touch. They find each other on social media like 10 years later. And they're having this really sweet long distance relationship. But then life gets in the way. And again, they disappear from one of another's lives. Until again, about 10, 15 years later, when... She is now married to an American and he comes over from Korea to uh, to visit her. And there's just these really like achingly devastating scenes of these two people who share, who clearly share this co- really strong connection, but she's with somebody else and she's happy with the somebody else. So there's this like, it's a love triangle, but not how we've seen before. So it's like achingly sad and just taps into those feelings that I think a lot of us can relate to. And Celine Song, I think she's again another one that's being talked about in award circles and Past Lives is is an incredible it's it's an incredible yeah, little film is. that I was like, this isn't gonna get me and then it got me. I thought it was an impeccably crafted tale about diverging paths. And it's a gentle and charming look at this pair whose connection stems from the closeness they had as children. And while they're holding on to nostalgia through idealized versions of each other's as they were each other's first loves and there are constants for the pair you have um hai sung who downplays his capabilities as just being ordinary or nora who as she grows up has aspirations for different kinds of awards but but despite these they have clearly grown from the people they were since they saw each other um i believe it was 24 years before and it's a really touching story about how nostalgic memories are sometimes all that we have to hold on to someone who was once important to our lives but no longer are and the funny thing about this is i saw this as part of an odian limitless screening but i double billed it with another odian limitless screening which could not be more different so i watched the gentle past lives with cobweb <laughs> How did that not become a Barbenheimer side? Oh yeah, past web, past web, cob, cob lives, cob life. Doesn't know what's done, does it? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they didn't have the marketing budget. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I'll echo everything James yeah. said. Um, past lives is delicate. It's beautiful. It's touching. It's quite a wonderful portrait of choices and regrets, destiny, acceptance, and indeed an immigrant experience, which it manages to communicate so well. And something that is, of course, we mentioned the you know confident debut um, that was talked to me. Past Lives was Celine Sung's first film. Um, she was, you know, she'd never written or directed a movie before. She's a playwright, but it is so composed a piece of work that yeah i i challenge anyone not to be moved by that film good yeah for rom-coms that aren't really rom-coms that um i can't remember what it's called now there was one set in london uh it was put on Rye disney Lane. plus sort of to yeah yeah Rye Lane. had a great deal of fun i with haven't that seen one. that yeah. yeah 
Yeah. I haven't seen that yet, but that's been um, very highly regarded. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, we have covered a lot of foreign language cinema in this podcast, but we haven't been out to one of the planet's biggest film industries yet. We haven't been out to India, but that changes now. September saw the release of Jawan. Javan. Javan. I, I believe it's it, it's pronounced with a W, uh, which means soldier uh, in Hindi. Um, and it is the title of uh, the new Atli movie um, starring India's richest actor Shah Rukh Khan, which is the second film of 2023 after a four-year hiatus over the pandemic. I should say that his first film this year, Pathan, uh, narrowly missed out on being in my top 10. It's currently my number 11. Um, but I'm glad that Javan was somehow more entertaining than the other extended Mission Impossible riff. Um, this one is a very, very convoluted, deeply silly, uh, and kind of surprisingly political film about a man called Azad Rathor. He's a prison warden in the world's most ethical and upbeat women's prison. Uh, he moonlights as a Robin Hood-style political activist determined to right the wrongs of uh, A, the agriculture sector's inequality, B, the sorry state of the public health system, and C, the rigged elections that keep the worst people in power. His disguise is that of his own legendary father, Vikram Rathor, who is considered dead by his political enemies, leaving it the ideal opportunity for Azad to operate unnoticed. Uh, but of course, in, in classic Bollywood fashion, it throws the gauntlet down for its star, not only just to play the protagonist, but then in the second half, also his even cooler, even more badass dad for the most... Uh, silly second half that you will ever see it's first and foremost a, a very dude's rock film uh, about how awesome uh, Shah Rukh Khan is both as a hunk and a political mind and I think that there is something slightly hypocritical about a man with a net worth of 600 million uh, to make an you know self-aggrandizing political drama that holds the same weight as like a Ken Loach film um, but it, it doesn't really matter because I think it might be the most dynamic action film of the year. I know I was big enough John Wick um, for its for its craft, but I think this one is definitely the most gravity defying one where Shah Rukh Khan double teams bad guys with himself. Uh, it is currently on Netflix, so accessible for all, unless you've been kicked out of, of a uh, Netflix. Uh, so. It's worth getting it back, I'll say that. Highly recommended. <laughs> now, as we go into October, we've got another another unexpected box office phenomenon, which I think really does show what an absolutely balmy movie year this has been. But the big hit uh, of the later months has been Taylor Swift, The Eva's Tour, <laughs> which <laughs> I'll just say is absolutely in my top 10 <laughs> uh, it's an experience and i've i've really enjoyed watching people sort of come out of it uh in everyone from mark Kermode to several people i follow on letterboxd saying jesus am i a teenage girl now or was that really really good and it was really good if it was any more elaborately staged she'd be changing costumes mid-sentence it is just the ultimate taylor swift experience and it reminds you how rarely you get to see 
a star of that scale at the absolute top of their game. Uh, basically, I co-sign everything Paul Schrader's said about Taylor Swift, which... Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, people not aware of what a Swifty Paul Schrader is. Oh, he's he's got a massive crush on her. <laughs> really? He hates Joe Alwyn. He hates stars at noon. <laughs> <laughs> Does he like cats just because she's in it, then? That would be a challenge, wouldn't it? (laughs) Challenge to any Swifty. I think if if I don't like Taylor Swift, will I like the Eras tour? I mean, it's look, it's a concert movie. It's nearly three hours of Taylor Swift's music, and I think you've got to sell, mate. I've got to say, (laughs) yeah, it's a struggle to recommend it. It's not one of those concert films like Stop Making Sense, which I think you know anyone can appreciate just as a piece of filmmaking. What I do think is that if you don't like Taylor Swift and someone straps you into that machine from the Clockwork Orange, What's you'll really love her by the end of this. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. maybe then. What a ringing endorsement. <laughs> All right, challenge accepted. Now, I'm going to run through a lot of horrors, and I don't, we don't need to talk about Marcos. There's a lot of them here. So... We have um, When Evil Lurks, Hell House LLC, The Carmichael Manor, Totally Killer, Dark Harvest, and Five Nights at Freddy's. I would say the highlight of that is When Evil Lurks, even if I think it needs a little bit more build-up before everything happens. But When Evil Lurks has fascinating world-building and doesn't really go anywhere with it. Yeah. It has some incredibly... Uh, incredibly hard scenes. The child and the dog is one of the scenes of the year. Yeah. Um, it's great, very violent, very, very interesting. Needed a little work. The protagonist is a total moron. That doesn't <laughs> help. Uh, everything that goes wrong goes wrong because he is a complete moron. But it has some... I, I want to see more in that world with just a better script. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Because I think it has such such great world building. The Hell House is just another Hell House. It's good. It's found footage. It's just now found footage with a different group of characters in a different house. Mm. But it has an uh, it builds on to the additional story. So we still have the Carmichael, um, the Abaddon Hotel still plays a role. It is still hugely, hugely reliant on men in clown costumes moving slowly. <laughs> but it is very scary. Um, what were the others? Uh, totally Killer, Dark Harvest, and Five Nights at Freddy's. Of those, Dark Harvest is the most interesting. Dark Harvest is by far the most interesting of those. This is, again, another really interesting bit of world building. It is set around a town where every year on Halloween, the members of this town, the young boys in the town, have to enter into a contest where they have to run down and kill this basically scarecrow that has come to life. And if they don't, terrible things will happen. It is very, very obvious where it is going very early on. But it's interesting. It's set in like a 1950s style America. There's some great scenes, some great uh, gory stuff going on. A little bit obvious where it's going, but, you know, unique, unique. I think really, really interesting Totally Killer is just a fun 1980s spoof, the idea being. It's sort of serial killers, but with time travel. So she goes back in time and it, it, we play into the podcast 
thing, which is maybe a little overplayed here of the people's fascination with true crime podcasts. But she ends up going back into the past, finding out that her mother was a stone cold bitch, which is very funny. There's a riff on the Heathers. And there's an ongoing joke about how no one cares in the 80s. So she keeps going up to people and sort of like the school receptionist and saying, I need all this info and trying to make up excuses as to why these receptionists is like, yeah, sure, here, whatever. I don't care. I'm going off for a fag. It's that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's good fun. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was an enjoyable one. Yeah. But I mean, it's lighthearted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that brings us to um, another one of the Mara Klim movies of the year, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, that's an extraordinary film. So this is Scorsese's latest opus uh, describing the real-life slaying of this particular nation tribe in the US where they were the richest tribe by per capita in some, because they found all this oil on their land. What the film doesn't explain all that clearly, but apparently the book does, is that in order to keep their oil rights, they couldn't sell them, but they could uh, give them on by way of inheritance. So all of a sudden, what happened was that the white man discovered this was a terribly clever idea and started marrying up all the women in the tribe and bumping them off, which is what happened. Everybody started uh, dying and then their oil rights were given by way of inheritance to people that should not have had them. And it centers around Leonardo DiCaprio. And yeah, he is this very dim-witted. He's playing somebody rather younger than himself, which is quite funny. Uh, And he falls in love with Molly, Molly and Ernest. He falls in love with Molly, but very much at the behest of Robert uh, Robert De Niro, who obviously wants her inheritance rights. He wants the uh, the oil rights that he had that she has. He is a terrible, terrible character. He is supposedly a benefactor to the town, but of course, really, all he's interested in is milking them for anything they're worth. There's a really interesting coda in which Martin, Martin Scorsese actually appears, which uh, is all about who gets to tell the story, who gets to tell the narrative, uh, who gets to to tell history, really. And it's he he's um, spoken about how it was inspired by the fact that there were an awful lot of radio serials where he was growing up that would tell this very shameful uh, sort of era of, of, of American history in this kind of comedic way. It was sort of limited to like a three minute jokey bit of oh my goodness, all these people died, isn't that dreadful? I... Killers of the Flower Moon is a was a movie that I had some trepidations about. Um, I decided I would go to see it because, you know, it's a Martin Scorsese film. So I figured it was going to be, you know, it was going to be a big, it was a big movie of the year. So I knew I was going to see it. But I was annoyed in a way that this particular story, because I essentially it's, it's, an, it's a Native American story. Okay. This mm. is a, a, t- a story of Native Americans and the, um, you know, being exploited and indeed being exterminated, um, being slaughtered in a way a subtle yeah. way if you like by um white uh, by white people so in that respect it feels like this ought to be made by native american filmmakers of course people uh, native american filmmakers are unlikely to get have the kind of clout and get the kind of budget that scorsese can get so it was necessary for it to be made for it to be made by a director like that however what i think is a really interesting aspect of Killers of the Flower Moon 
is that it is not unlike Oppenheimer, actually. It's kind of deconstructing classic American genres. This is a very American story, and it is doing some anti-things that a narrative like this could have done. It is partly a gangster film, Hello Scorsese, partly a Western as well, but it could very easily be, but it is an anti-white saviour story because the character played by Leonardo DiCaprio in this could have very easily been the guy who comes in and saves the day, as indeed could the character in this played by Jesse Plemons as um, representative of the authority of the FBI. Um, just the Jesse Plemons shows up for about 10 minutes and his things already become a meme in terms of their, you know, him showing up uh, hear about the murders to find out what? Well, to find out who's doing them. Yeah, it's great. I mean, as everything Scorsese, it's far too long, far too long. It's three and a half hours. It's a real, again, you don't feel the length. I think it's beautifully, beautifully done. Um, Lily Gladstone is the absolute heart and soul of the film. It is a beautiful, honest performance as this woman just absolutely surrounded by pure evil with her husband just purely there for her inheritance rights. It's all he wants. I mean, he loves her. So his whole thing is he does these terrible things, seemingly excusing himself, but it's just a terrible stain on his conscience. It is It is a movie without heroes, really. It is a film just about pretty much with victims and with perpetrators. And it is measured, it is sombre, it is beautiful, it is textured, and it is nuanced. It is a tale of infiltration and exploitation, quiet genocide, um, and the struggle for wealth. And in it is, in some respects, it's interesting that, uh, that in, in relation to an earlier film we um, uh, there will be blood um, was mm. mentioned. Um, I think it was in relation to all the beauty and the bloodshed, or possibly no, to blood. that was it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think there's a parallel here. Any opportunity I get to, you know, sing the praise of there will be blood, I will take because I do still think it's the best film of the 21st century so far. And I think, like that, Killers of the Flower Moon, it is about the ruthlessness of American capitalism. And it's putting the shame of that um, on screen, but in a way that never, and it never flinches from that, but nor does it ever feel preachy. It feels, mm. it, it felt to me like a, like, even though it's an opulent grand epic, it somehow also felt stripped down. I think it's the best film Scorsese has made in a decade. Certainly, you know, I was not a fan of The Irishman. I found Silence kind of a slog. Um, I love The Wolf of Wall Street and I love Hugo. And this is certainly, I think, Scorsese's best film since those two. Um, and yeah, it is a it's a very sobering watch that I think needs to be seen and come away from going like, I don't feel entirely comfortable with myself. And that's a good thing. It, like most Scorsese films, it is all about good and evil. Um, beautifully, beautifully directed. DiCaprio is great, but it's not one of his strongest performances, I don't think. But I think Lily Gladstone is phenomenal in it, and De Niro is incredible. But there's also, again, it's another one where the entire supporting cast in this is incredible. It's a very, very good film.
It's an Apple film. I presume it's going to show up on Apple TV at some point, but at the moment it seems to be theatrical only. Yeah, I, yeah, everything agreed there. I was a big fan of that one as well. It probably could have been about 45 minutes shorter, and I do think Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio is a little bit miscast, but he's very good, but could have went to a younger he's actor, just, honestly. He's just sort of acting all the way through. Yeah. It's also really funny that everyone calls him boy all the way through, and, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio is in his 40s, so that's very entertaining. Yeah. I've just yeah. got to ask, has anybody read uh, the, the book? Um, oh, right, yeah. so, so Graham has, yeah. Um, I just just a question about uh, that. Uh, how you feel about the the narrative structure of uh, this this adaptation changing things quite considerably because the book is divided into three acts, three perspectives. The first one is from mostly from Molly Burkhart's um, mm-hmm. perspective um, as the killings start. It starts off in her childhood, but really begins to focus in once uh, Ernest uh, Leonardo DiCaprio comes into her life. Um, and uh, as as the body count starts significantly rising, the uh, perspective changes to the Jesse Plemons character, Tom White, who mm. um, is is the the hero essentially of of the book, and he's reduced to about ten minutes of screen time in yeah. uh, in, in in the Scorsese version, um, and and through that that change as well comes a lot of. Uh, removing of, of the mystery of the book as well it is a genuine shock that the 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 killers are Ernest and uh, William King Hale and uh his his posse as well um so it's it's that heartbreak of of the reveal that is is missing from the film and I think the film is a lot more honest in that respect because it doesn't sensationalize that emotion that's that's yeah. my take on it what do you think Graham? I think that's a very good point. I think the the Bill Hale reveal in the book is staggering, but it's staggering because you think, oh my God, this is like how it would be in a movie. You know, mm-hmm. it's the kind of, oh, this goes all the way to the top moment <laughs> that you only usually see in thrillers. And I think actually doing that in a movie would feel trite and obvious. I think what Scorsese does by shifting the focus onto Ernest is to play is to place the focus on someone who is absolutely tragically flawed and who cannot as much as he might delude himself into thinking he loves Molly cannot divorce himself from the horror of what's being done here I also kind of like Scorsese's quote about Tom Weiss the FBI agent where he said he just wasn't flawed enough to be interesting to us. Like we tried to look up some sort of problem he had and we found out that occasionally he went out duck shooting. And that's it. That was the, that was the worst thing about the guy. Bastard. <laughs> so yeah, yeah I, I it's it's a smart move in 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 sort of mm. juggling that yeah. that uh the the the, the 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 inexplicable nature of evil and putting that front and center yeah is a is, is a fascinating way of doing it as well um 100 percent yeah i thought it was a, a fantastic film um i did actually prefer the irishman and silence uh funnily <laughs> enough uh to this one but i think he's been on such a hot streak at the minute that it's it's really splitting mm-hmm. hairs for me so 
yeah, another another great one. Yeah, I keep hearing from Quentin Tarantino how he wants to retire uh, after his tenth film because he's <laughs> afraid that he's gonna turn bad, like a lot of directors apparently do when they're older. Then you've got um, Martin Scorsese, who's 82. This is his 26th film. And I genuinely think it's a absolute brilliant piece of cinema. So I just think, what are you basing this on, Quentin? <laughs> and yes. Maybe Quentin's got some one, self-awareness and realises he one already is... has gone off the boil. <laughs> Directors get better as they get older. Even Hollywood. <laughs> I was say yeah, like Ollie was saying earlier, yeah, directors get weirder and more interesting. Every single director who's ever lived has gotten better mm. as they get older. I will not hear any anyone try and <laughs> argue my point. Uh, Dario Argento. <laughs> uh, his last Ooh. film was good. I haven't seen Dark Glasses actually, but I, yeah, but, but I think, yeah. I think yeah. Dracula was enough. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. You got me there. Oh, there's another cat uh, duo. First of which debuted at Fright Fest, the opening movie that will be suitable flesh. Yes. So it debuted in uh, Tribeca internationally, but uh, it opened Tribeca. it opened Fright Fest this year. Uh, it's directed by Joe Lynch, who took up the reins after Stuart Gordon sadly passed away. It is a modern gender flipped retelling of H.P. Love. The Thing on the Doorstep. Uh, it stars Barbara Crampton, Heather Graham, Judah Lewis, and it is incredibly horny. It is body horror. It is erotic thriller from the 90s. It is comedy. It's camp. It's gore. Yeah. Uh, the practical effects everywhere. Um, it's a ton of fun. It's exactly the sort of film that you want to open five days of a horror festival with. And uh, it's yeah, it's nice to see Joe Lynch back. And yeah, I had I had a lot of fun with this one. I saw this. Uh, I, I was it just happened to be in New York at the time, so I saw it at the Tribeca Film Festival. I really loved the fact that Joe Lynch and Barbara Crampton went down the entire line to say hello to everybody waiting outside because that's the kind of people they are. And it was great. You're right. It's very much. It's the sort of thing you went into Blockbuster in the '90s and picked up that probably had some incredibly lurid cover. It has the most hilarious car park scene sequence in it. Yeah. Um, everyone is very, very, very hot for Ju- for Judah Lewis. It, it's great fun. I love the fact as well that we have a gender flipped himbo, a husband who doesn't do anything but apart, Pat sort of sits at home, uh, makes makes the food and is there to have sex with, which you know I approve of. So it's a great <laughs> film. It's good fun. Yes. And uh, the second half of that twofer is uh, Fair Play. Yes, yeah, so Fair Play is available on Netflix. I first saw it at Sundance. It's directed by Chloe Demont and it is it's set in like a high power finance world. There's a couple who work together. It's a, a company where people aren't allowed to have relationships, so they're keeping their relationship secret. Uh, promotion suddenly comes up and they're both certain that he is going to get it, but she gets it. And boy, does his fragile, toxic masculinity, his little ego can't take it and he just becomes the biggest bastard to her. And it's all about her trying to find her feet in the boys' club whilst also trying to try to find out where she stands in a relationship because initially she tries to like stroke his ego and sort of pat him on the head and she tries to help him get ahead but again he can't 
can't take help from a woman. He doesn't like the fact that she earns more than him. And I just thought it was a really interesting analysis of these sorts of relationships because they they happen more than more than people realise. And just a nice little thriller that has kind of stuck with me since Sundance. And again, it's it's our old pal Olden. Yeah, it's it's Olden. It's Olden and again, he, isn't it? Yeah, really fucking hate him in this film. Uh, <laughs> that's because he's it's because he's so good. <laughs> I haven't seen i <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Everyone says it's really good. Yeah. So I just want to round October out with a film I saw that month that does not gain enough love, uh, but is by a British director who I think is just tremendous and is so keyed into my personal way of seeing the world uh, it's Cavill Morley's typist artist Pirate King the extremely untrue story about the real life artist Audrey Amos uh, a former kitchen sink realist painter who succumbed to schizophrenia in in this telling in the least tragic way possible that people around her started reacting to her differently but she remained absolutely herself. It takes its cue from a comment she made when she was in a more lucid state, and she said that during her schizophrenic episode, she felt like Don Quixote. And this gives her a female social worker called Sandra Panza. Uh, <laughs> oh my god <laughs> she goes on a, a suitably chaotic road trip with uh, they crash into a tree she is crowned queen of the ancient Britons and lots of other things that probably didn't happen happen in a very endearing way I was I think Maudling's always very good at research even when she isn't doing a documentary as she sometimes has done uh, her fictional films like The Falling are the product of so much research into the subject matter. And I was thrilled to go back to the article she's written about Amos and find out that most of the funniest lines in here are verbatim, including my personal favourite uh, when she's explaining her career. It said, I used to be a social realist and now I've become avant-garde and misunderstood. <laughs> so I'm just actually looking at the film. And I, I had no idea that Agnes Godard was the cinematographer for it. Yes, she's is... worked with Agnes Godard since The Falling. Uh, the Falling is a beautiful film, I think. This is more visually straightforward, but you can still see Agnes Godard's fingerprints on it, I think. Is that she Claire moved, Denise, she moved, cinematographer? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. As I say, she moved from Claire Denis to her. Sort of, she's not worked with Claire Denis for a long time. So I wouldn't Hasn't have, she? I've, I've met her, no. I think. At a film think festival. Ah. Last I didn't really know film. what to say to her. <laughs> <laughs> Let the Sunshine In was the last Claire Denis film she worked on. Oh, right. which, was about, which was about three films ago now. So. Mm, yes, I didn't know that. I don't know if they fell out. I kind of I did Google it at one point to try and find out if there was some sort of, but nothing came up. So there probably isn't that much interest on gossip websites about falling out with <laughs> French cinematographers, <laughs> although there absolutely should be. No, I also tried to find what about Christian Petzold and Nina Hoss because they stopped working together mm. recently, and I I wondered. It's always curious when there's like people have made like ten films together and then suddenly just mm. don't anymore. Like you know, why did they stop? But yeah, you know, there's a gap about, in the market, guys. Let's get it going. 
Yeah. Or you just take <laughs> the try to interview them and take the risk on asking them and potentially yeah. anger them and never want to get punched. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to think of a pun on TMZ, but I can't think of one. <laughs> yes. Um, moving on to November, uh, start with the one that isn't present. Uh, Thanksgiving, Kim picked uh, that month. So I literally just watched this in the past uh, week, and it is much more of a banger That's than fun. I had anticipated. Like Eli Roth is a problematic, problematic man. So it, you're know, wholeheartedly endorsing anything that he is involved with is is tricky, but it is fun. It basically, the whole premise of it is that it is a, you know, the, the ridiculousness of Black Friday in the US where we have had actual riots and people dying and people being trampled. And that is the premise of this. It starts out at a grocery store. There is a riot slash mass trampling event. And then one year later, somebody in a pilgrim's mask starts slashing up the people that were involved. Um, nobody in this is particularly likable. I quite like that. None of them are. You can't really wholeheartedly go yay for anybody. There's a hugely privileged family at the center of it that kind of caused the chaos. It's set in Boston, so it has some of the strongest Boston accents you've ever heard. It's got Patrick Dempsey as the sexy cop. Uh, it has a sequence with, uh, yeah. how should we call it, a turkey that goes quite hard. It is much, much more fun than I had anticipated it would be. In fact, I think it's probably the slasher of the year. Um, it is blatant yeah. sequel grubbing in the last 30 seconds, like the most blatant sequel grubbing you've ever seen. But, you know, if they've got any sense, they probably will knock another one out. I mean, horror consistently performs very well at the box office. This did much better than was it was expected to, and it's fun. Big, big art house release this month of the uh, Palm Door winning film Anatomy of a Fall, which I know is on several people's lists. I just Great. caught up with this one on uh, Monday uh, ah. this week. Um, very, very glad to because I, I was planning on seeing it. I caught COVID. That really got in the way, didn't it? <laughs> uh, but yes, there was a, a, yeah. a screening at audience, uh, audience spotlight, and I'm, I'm very, very glad that they put it so near me as well. Um, uh, a, a terrific um, film where that's very non-committal in its uh, in its perceptions of the truth and uh, the different ways that people can convince themselves of um, other people's truths and also their own lies. Um, I've been thinking about the way that it presents evidence both as audio and visual um, and leaves so much up to interpretation by the presence and the absence of both of them. So it's all about these these different ways of, of telling stories. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure other people have got a lot more to say about it than I have, but uh, yeah, the, the Truly, a, a, a an interesting combination of ingredients, and I never thought that it would be uh, kicked off by uh, a fifty cent track being uh, blasted <laughs> through the house. Um, but that is that is definitely yeah. one of the uh, most interesting details in any film I've seen this year. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how that feels so oppressive. Like even just the playing of that song says so much, and that's all a lot. Of, <laughs> and the film, it's so. I mean, there's a, a couple of times in the dialogue it, uh, that it gets a little bit too uh, 
clever about what it's talking about. But other, but generally speaking, it's a really interesting exploration of like, yeah, like, like you were saying, Simon, about nature of truth and about it playing with your expectations and your assumptions. Are you it really you really are put in the position of you are trying to judge this as well? But what is there to actually judge? What can we actually confirm? Is what happened, um, and it's a really interesting way of playing with language as well, because you have Sandra Huller's character who's the, under so much scrutiny. Um, who can flip between English, German, and uh, there's a third language but I can't remember. Is it French? French, French. French. obviously. <laughs> but, but how? But the the significance of which language she uses and when she uses it, it becomes a, a massive thing of scrutiny around her. And the son is really a fascinating character in his own right as well, has a major decision, makes a major decision in the back half of it, which again you, you don't quite know what decisions he's made, if you know what I mean. You know he's gone one way or the other, but you don't know which way. And it, it, the fact that it leaves you in that ambiguous state. So Anatomy of a Fall is Sandra Hiller's other extraordinary performance of the year. It's basically a courtroom drama, which is kind of surprising that it won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and it's surprising that a courtroom drama uh, has captured the imaginations of everyone so much. Essentially, it is uh, Sandra Hiller stars as a novelist who one day her husband falls, or did he, from the top window of their cabin, and she is placed, she is charged for it. She is charged with his murder. And it all unfurls thereafter in a courtroom as her and her attorney set out their defence uh, as against the prosecution. I've seen lots of people saying that he is the villain of the year. Uh, it's very tense, beautifully acted. It has one of the best child performances uh, that I've seen in some time. Incredible dog performances as well. There's a, there's a dog in it which has... Uh, one of the most sort of natural dog performances you've ever seen. It's incredible. Yeah, mm, absolutely. Yeah, the um, yeah wonderful dog performance, and um, it's yeah Anatomy of a Fall is ingenious. I think it's utterly compelling. It has this fabulous ambiguity, and it's both a domestic drama and a courtroom drama. And, I, and I'll pick up some something that you mentioned, Simon. The about the. Um, the uncertainty and what I would call um, the blind spots between truths. Um, because, nice. yeah, come the end of that movie, it's like there's a something there we didn't see. And we're left to think, I'm not sure. And that is anything that can do that is really doing something right, I think. Yeah. And also, just there's a real sense of aggravation with anything to do with the two lawyers. Like in theory, we're meant to be sort of on the side of the defence lawyer to a degree or something more sympathetic because the prosecutor one is just horrible in many ways but just when they have to like recreate scenes and they have to just oh no mm. the, the volume the, the music should be playing this loud for it to be accurate but but no but it needs to be louder for the story to be it just that sort of them trying to form the arguments it's a really I don't know why it's uncomfortable but it really is because it's just, it's just strange or trying to they're trying to fit pieces together that don't quite fit and it's it's, yeah, it's so compelling. It's it's a really unusual depiction of like uh, a courtroom drama. I feel it's really interesting and it, yeah, engrossing as well. And yeah, it's really well. It's really taught. It's really well told. She's not particularly likable, which I appreciate. She cheats on her husband and is very uh, matter of fact about that, which I think is really interesting. She is not your typical 
victim, I guess, if you're going to have a courtroom. She's not the innocent. She's not... Uh, she really is... It's up to you to decide, I think, ultimately, even with the ending, what you think about it. But it's beautifully, beautifully done. Um, she is phenomenal. Her son in it is phenomenal. It's directed by Justine Triette. Uh, it's captivated everyone that's seen it. It's very, very tense. It's great. And I mean, it's it's very accessible and easy to watch because it's just a straightforward courtroom drama uh, as each side tries to present very minimal evidence either way to determine what happened and it's really about a relationship I mean I went back and forth so much in terms of who I had sympathy for and who I didn't have sympathy for because she's not particularly likable character but at the same time he's suffering from the fact that she is much more successful than he is and he wanted to be more they are two artistic people who feel constrained by their lives and by each other and by being parents and it's this really interesting look into what happens when you know the perfect life goes wrong and but it's also a really accessible very entertaining very taut courtroom drama it's fantastic absolutely worth watching excellent yeah, I was blown away by this one. I just thought it was a really interesting look at um, this widow who's put through the ringer to prove her innocence, but her, the many sides of her real life are torn apart by a prosecution intent on painting her as monstrous. And it's really interesting how it captures how real life cases cases can be treated as entertainment firstly with little regard for the actual people who are affected particularly during a scene on the telly where there's people theorizing about what the outcome is going to be as though it's like the season finale of game of thrones this was an exceptional film and oh oh yeah the prosecutor is probably my villain of the year <laughs> <laughs> just want to punch you don't you <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't the uh, only film from this year's can that came out in November. We also had the British debut with the extraordinary title, How to Have Sex. We've had How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and now we've got the obvious second part of the lesson here. Yeah, both of them on my list, and Vorba, like, I, I mean, instructional <laughs> films I've been watching this year. Um, this is a completely overwhelming film on just experiment. It's it's uh, it's it's about sort of consent, and I think it's not necessarily the film you expect it to be. I think it because it really the actual sort of moment of consent or non-consent uh, is very brief. Really, you don't linger on the scene too much at all. It's much more about the psychology around it and the social pressures of these you know young girls who are underage going to you know IBs. They just want to have a fun time. They they want to go and get laid, um, but it's the pressures that surround them and particularly around one particular character Tara who's amazingly played by uh, Mia McKenna Brew it's just very quietly devastating because it's it's a, it's so much about is what's not being said is about what how she doesn't want to talk about it and is just trying it's it's just really well really well done in this and it's also just I mean <laughs> I'm getting older, but just going to sort of this Ibiza party experience just looks like hell on earth anyway. <laughs> uh, but it's, yeah, it's a really incredible character study. And just, yeah, again, it's not, you know, it, it, it's not the film you expect it to be. And I think I know particularly in a lot of like 
female critics responded to it as feeling very close to true. Obviously, I've never been uh, through anything like that. Um, so it, it's there's an there's an authenticity to it, but it is also a weird heightenedness to it, which I think makes sense because of like when something like that's happened, you're not necessarily going to perceive things normally, quote unquote. You know, um, yeah, I think it's an absolutely brilliant, yeah, really quietly devastating with characters that you really believe that the friendships in it are really believable, especially the, the friendships that aren't necessarily totally like pleasant with each other. Like there's Tara, and, uh, her name is now, but one of the other friends, they don't really seem to get along that well, but it's one of those friendships where you can tell that they've just known each other so long. They just sort of, they, they just, they're able to be friends with each other without necessarily actually liking each other all that much. So it's, yeah, all these little details that make, yeah, really impressive, really impressive feature debut. And yeah. It's great. And it's got um, Sam Bottomley from The Selfish Giant in it as well. I was watching, it's like, I recognize you. Who are you? And he was in The Selfish Giant. Of course, a devastating moment in The Selfish Giant. And this, uh, he's less so here, but it's also very good. It's all very grounded. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's one of the most authentic films I've seen this year as well. Um, it made me feel uh, completely sick, like even before the, uh, the, 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 yeah. the central event of the film happens it's mm-hmm. it's just the depiction of that culture is so uh lived in that mm-hmm. i felt like i was getting a hangover in real time <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah um i i actually did feel kind of a bit like i might just have to like leave for five minutes because this is uh truly truly a nightmare <laughs> for me yeah. um, but then once it settles down into the the different sides of the characters that you know, are never there's there's nothing in the film that kind of prompts them to just go, okay, I'm gonna tell you how I feel right now. Mm. It's just it's the things that <clears throat> kind of just seep out in 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 like natural sort of interactions with people. I thought it was terrific. I think Mia McKenna Bruce actually probably gave my favorite performance of of this year. I thought she was fantastic. incredible. Incredible. It's almost uh, like a jump scare moment in a bed as well. When we know the moment, I think it was like. You can't believe something is happening in, yeah. in, in front of you, uh, but it's also believable because it feels so like normal. And then somebody opens the door and it stops, and it's just that that seems probably one of the most devastating moments I've seen this year. This is a really horrible, believable thing where it's, yeah. and it almost sums up what like the message of the film is. But it also it's always been didactic. It's not a if you better not go drink and do drugs because bad things will happen to you. It's about it's not you know it it's a very yeah yeah like you said i'm a very relatable real film yeah absolutely yeah it's it's a very yeah how to have sex is a very grounded and very human film which i i actually came out of that feeling slightly ashamed of being a man which i think is a is a good thing um it's but, but at the same time as you say it's not didactic it's human and humane i think it's manages to be in equal parts heartwarming hedonistic and harrowing it's a it is a coming of age portrait of team friendship teen friendship and then it's also an exploration of sexual politics and it's got this fantastic balance of pleasure and empathy and trauma um, and I think the uh, what you were saying, um, Simon, that it actually made you feel you had to leave. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. But it's saying, no, look at this. And at the same time, not in a way that is necessarily 
so nothing that was spectacularized or um, sensationalized. It was, yeah. So in some respects, it was showing the um, banality of something really quite horrendous. Yeah, very powerful piece of work. We've got another film about the murkiness of consent and what consent can mean or not mean uh, the least this month, which is Todd Haynes' new one, May, December. Uh, wild movie, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> certainly didn't expect to find it as uh, funny as as I, I did. I think I got more kind of honest laughs out of this than, than I did most comedies um, because it is completely acidic um for those who don't know it's um a sort of loose adaptation of a real life case uh of a relationship between um a woman in her 30s and a seventh grader um who they were in a sexual relationship and when she went to jail she was pregnant with his child uh, at least that's how it uh, turns out in the film um so you've got julianne moore playing uh the uh the pedophile uh, in this case, and you've got Charles Melton playing the adult version of uh, the boy. And uh, time has passed. They are living out a peaceful-ish existence uh, in this isolated community and um, uh, with their three children. And uh, Natalie Portman comes along. She's a well-regarded actress who's been in a beloved TV show, and she would like to play... Uh, Julianne Moore's character in a film and uh, she comes along she starts treating her like she would anybody else interviewing her about you know the one of the most shameful things that a human being is capable of and um, the relationship between the three of them unravels from there I've seen quite a lot of comparisons with Bergman's persona um, but it did remind me quite a lot more of something like a Brian De Palma meta movie. I love Body Double, and I think Body Double has its own sort of um, regard in in being a, a, a truly sick-minded uh, comedy about uh, the, the lengths that we're willing to go to for authenticity, and this is uh, firmly that, but I think from a very uh, gendered female perspective. People are calling it camp, and bizarrely, it's been in the comedy section for the Golden Globes. It is not. I suppose I could call it high-end trash melodrama, I suppose is the best way of putting it. It is on Netflix in the US, if you have a VPN. It's an interesting film. I think the key for me is that Charles Melton, who plays the, the young lad in it, is the least experienced and the no-name compared to Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman and absolutely runs away with the entire thing. He gets some very unsubtle metaphors about, you know, caterpillars emerging from their chrysalis and all the rest of it. But it is... He is extraordinary as someone who very slowly begins to realise that actually this was a terrible, terrible, terrible thing that was done to him and he is still trapped... And he's never really been able to to grow up because he is still trapped in that uh, repressed adolescence with his abuser. Charles Melton is uh, absolutely stunning as this this man who has not really been allowed to be a man. He's had his uh, you know 
his, his adolescence completely snatched from him and thrown into this world of you know trauma and uh, the conflicting nature of uh, what what he regards as love, um, and the way that he carries himself uh, alongside his, his children who are going off to college. There's many scenes where he appears to be younger than they are, which I think is a is a terrifying um, implication. Uh, this was the, the the last film I added in my top 10 this week but uh wow what a last minute uh admission truly um yeah like like drinking bleach and i mean that in a good way <laughs> that's an interesting way to recommend it i must say julianne moore is extraordinary natalie portman is great but acts throughout there's one the sequence which i'm sure will be on all the award shows in which she is pretending to be her with the lisp and everything else but it's all just like acting with a capital a mm. i actually prefer julianne moore's last scene where she just completely diminishes her it's uh it's very interesting but charles melton is actually absolutely supernova in this it's a it's a really good really great film if you can get through the sequence in which natalie portman is watching children video audition to be her lover without wanting to be violently sick you probably need to be on a register somewhere it's that sort of film tonally it is all over the shop because i said it's kind of a high trash melodrama but it's it's based on this very central premise of pedophilia so it is deeply unpleasant um it's interesting it's an interesting one i you can't love it because of its premise you can respect it and I think that Charles Melton uh, should do incredibly well from it. He's kind of came out of nowhere. I think he was in Riverdale, which I've never seen, but he is phenomenal in it. And for him to hold his own against those two powerhouses is is a real testament to his acting ability. Uh, from there on, we move to... Uh, it's weird how that's not the most divisive one of the month. And I think that's because November was also the month that Saltburn came out. Yes, uh, so Saltburn is on Prime. It's the film that everybody is talking about. It is set in the mid-noughties at Oxford. It follows a guy called Oliver, who is a working-class Liverpudlian, who gets taken under the wing by uh, the much-rich uh, Felix, and they holiday at his family's summer home, Saltburn, and uh, things get very very messy very wrong uh the normies in the audience it is shocking for the non-normies in the audience it's stuff you see it a thousand times but it's still done in a very very interesting way it's emerald fennel's follow-up to promising young woman and i i love this i didn't love it quite as much as as some of our friends um who i think have watched it on repeat since it dropped on amazon but yeah play it play it have a day jess <laughs> it's mr ripley goes to liverpool but, but sorry mr. mr ripley goes to university basically you've got scouse ripley November was for me a fantastic month because it was in November I saw Killers of the Flower Moon and um, Anatomy of a Fall and Saltburn, all of which got into my uh, top ten. Saltburn was something that, from the well, as it opened, I was like, okay, interesting. It's something I again went into with high expectations because 
It's directed by Emerald Fennell, and I adore Promising Young Woman. Um, so I had high hopes. And it started off feeling a bit odd, and then it got even more odd. And then I thought, okay, we're doing a thing. I, I see what's happening here. And then it went, oh, no, we're doing a different thing. And, okay, okay, that's a bit odd. And And there was one absolutely revolting moment in it that had me cringing in my seat. If you've seen it, you probably know what I'm talking about. I think I've seen something on Twitter involving slurping. Uh, is, is that <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. And then it went in directions I had not anticipated. Once it started going in those dire- it went going in that direction, I was like, okay, now I see what you're doing. But even though I knew where it was then going, it still kept me interested. It still surprised me. And it's something that managed to be, you know, genuinely surprising um, while also being sinuous and sensual um, in its direction and exquisite in its production design. It is, I think, a dark comedy of manners spliced with a tragic family drama and with a malevolent class thriller. It's got scabrous satire, twisted relationships and desire that is both tender and savage. To be able to bring again the balance to all of those different elements, um, I took I take my hat off to Emerald Fennell once again. And yeah, please keep doing this. Give her whatever she needs to make um, more of uh, more delights like this. Because yeah, Saltburn was fantastic. However, I'm aware that there might be alternative views. Or maybe there aren't. Who knows? I just have not seen it yet. Um, I did not like Promising Young Woman. Um, I am quite looking forward to watching this. So I, I think I'm going to have a couple of beers with this one and and, and have a hoot and a holler because uh, I, think, I think I'm going to enjoy it more if I just view it as uh, as, as absurd as it sounds. <laughs> That's fair. It's great. It's silly. It, it's all gloss. It has no substance whatsoever. But everyone's it's brilliant. Amazing, it. Rossman yes. Pike, icon, absolute icon in it. Barry Coigan is phenomenal. Um, you have Jacob Elordi, who just needs to look incredibly beautiful throughout, which he does. Cat and I saw it at a press screening. And, you know, people are being quite dismissive online about, oh, my goodness, this isn't shocking. But you have to bear in mind that audience that we were with just couldn't cope with it at all. Both of us were sat there not reacting. And this audience was like, (gasps) (gasps) all the way through. So I think to people that are not kind of a horror audience, this is quite a lot. This is quite a lot. And people putting it on with their families over Christmas is hilarious. It's... uh, it's basically the talented Mr. Ripley, only uh, queerer and messier. Yeah, a little bit of rules retraction. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We round out our November uh, with Dream Scenario, the Nicolas Cage movie in which Nicolas Cage Ooh. plays a man who is as much of a meme as Nicolas Cage is in Who wants to take this? I uh, love this one. Um Again, uh, another surprising Ariasta connection. Uh, He actually produced this. Uh, He was going to 
uh, direct the script, uh, but with Adam Sandler in the role instead of Nicolas Cage, apparently, which I think would have played huh. as a very, very different film. Um, but this one I, I thought was terrific. So basic concept, um, Nicolas Cage plays a man named Paul Matthews, sad sack uh, chemistry lecturer. No, uh, sorry, uh, bio, bio biology. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes, biology lecturer um, who is kind of comfortable, but like comfortably numb in a lot of ways. Uh, he's been talking about writing a book for about 30 years now, but he's never actually put pen to paper. He's just been accumulating knowledge about it. And then all of a sudden he starts turning up in people's dreams, doing approximately nothing, just walking by, giving them a smile, sweeping the, the leaves by the pool. Um, and it's this weird kind of... Uh, he's like the Freddy Krueger of, of nothingness. Uh, to a lot of people, <laughs> people are recognizing him and going, "Oh, that's that's so cool that I'm seeing you in my dreams." I hope, I hope you know something nice is going to happen. Um, and when things not nice start happening in the dreams, that's when uh, I think the real uh, psychological texture of the film comes in because I think it's a lot about how suggestive we are, how uh, suggestive <laughs> our subconscious is to images and to uh, the way that we assume things about people. Um, I actually had a dream uh, the previous week about somebody that I know uh, that turned out to be really quite horrible. And uh, I was like, is that on me that mm. that happened? Or is it a vibe? Is it is it what? I don't know here. Um, so I think it's, it's another film that doesn't really answer those questions. And I, I think it does sort of fall off in the last 15 minutes or so. But up till that point, I think it was the most psychologically stimulating and, and very, very enjoyable film I've, I've seen uh, all year. And Cage is fantastic. So uh, the retirement plan, all is forgiven, go with God, <laughs> etc. Yeah, he's so, so good in this. It's, it's, I can't imagine Adam Sandler, I can't imagine it working, but maybe it would have been. Yeah, it, I, I think... I'm not sure of it, how much it has to really say about like, when it gets into sort of the cancel culture stuff. I think it's funny... What, yeah. how it does it but i don't know how much it really has to say about it and yeah i agree with you it sort of falls off in the last like 15 minutes there's basically a great bit where there's like a pa who's had a sort of a sex dream about him and they sort of <laughs> try to reenact it and it's just horribly horribly awkward and it's i don't know if you've ever seen like a dream being crushed on screen before i guess <laughs> in a very literal sense um yeah it's really it's very it's very yeah stimulating is a great word for it it's very fun and interesting and just odd and yeah i got a lot i got a lot of fun out of it so into december and i'm delighted to say that oliver has nominated a movie whose title i cannot pronounce uh my french language skills are pitiful please it's not me out. isn't it what is it no it's spanish well, that's how bad my language skills are. It, so does, it does sound French. <laughs> I, I, I think I know what you're talking about. Is it Trenkloken? Yeah, well, I always call, I, I've been calling it Trenkloken, but Trenkloken. that sounds Scottish. So, um, <laughs> yeah, this is a relatively new film. I mean, I think it's the newest film. Well, it's, 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 it came out like a week ago, so I think it's probably the newest film we might speak about. Um, yeah, we, we've been talking about three-hour films and how people avoid them, but this is actually 
a four and a half hour film. So Ooh, <laughs> not sure. big one. <laughs> sure that says about me. So um, <laughs> yeah, it's an Argentinian film um, by Laura Citarella, who hasn't, who's actually more prolific as a producer. Uh, there's a company called uh, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. It's called something uh, El Pampero Cine, I think is the name of it. Uh, they've basically been releasing, producing lots of Argentinian art films over the past 10 years. One of them being a film called La Flor, which is the longest Argentinian film of all time. Runs at 14 hours. Um, so yeah, there's, there's very much in the way of long films for these people. Um, but yeah, Drake Lorcan is a film about a woman called Laura who goes missing and her two colleagues, no, a colleague and her boyfriend uh, go on a journey to discover what happened to her. Um, which for anyone who sounds like, anyone who's seen Twin Peaks sounds a bit like Twin Peaks. <laughs> and uh, sort of is a bit like Twin Peaks, I guess. Okay. Um, has a very, it's not, it's not, a, well, actually, no, it does kind of go into some sort of weirder elements. It's not completely straight laced. Um, it's a very strange film. It kind of oscillates between genres. It's a mystery, romance, history, sci-fi film. Um, it's kind of novelistic. It's got a lot of characters. It's got a lot of goes back and forth, flashbacks, um, back and, like flashbacks and flashbacks. Um, it's all broken down into episodes, like small chapters. Um, the film is actually in two parts, um, which is frustrating to see it because the for example Curzon who are releasing it in the UK you can rent it from their website um, for the I don't know average price of £10 which I guess is maybe the average rental price but each part has to be rented separately which is so it's obscene. actually £20 it's actually £20 yeah. because you, you cannot watch the first oh. part and not the second part wow. um, <laughs> which is a criminal they should just release it as one thing um Luckily, I I have a, I got a a review copy to watch, so I didn't have to <laughs> pay the rental fee. It is also in cinemas and some places. I think very limited. If you have a Curzon in your city, it might be there. But there's a um, one-off screening at Tyneside Cinema, I think, on January eighth, which I was looking up and I was like, oh yeah, and then I realised them at work. Oh, um, so I ca- I cannot justify it because it is it is four and a half hours right in the yeah. middle of the day. And it's one off. Damn yeah, it. it's. it's uh, I wish I'd seen it at the cinema. It's, it's very good. It's kind of hard to summarize, really. I think actually it's one of those films where the less you know about what happens in it is the, the better it gets. Um, I will say this one thing is that the Kaida Cinema placed it as their number one, which is wow. like, partly really the reason why I, I was uh, sort of Googled it and saw that it got very good reviews from many people I sort of follow. Um, and yeah, it's very good. Um, the lead, the central character, who's played by Laura Paredes, is, is very good. It's a very emotional, uh, sort of, has a very good um, emotional beats, even though the film is so big and and also art housey. So yeah, really enjoyed it. Very high to high recommend if you can get the time to watch it. Um, although is it, as it is in two parts, you could do one part one evening and then the second part the next evening. And it wouldn't, you wouldn't really lose anything from doing it that, like that. So, um, Moving on to Naomi with Maestro, which I think has just been out the last couple of days on Netflix, if I understand that one correctly. 
Yes. So Maestro is Bradley Cooper's, uh, he's directs it, he co-writes it and he stars in it. And it is a biopic of Leonard Bernstein, uh, the legendary composer. Uh, it is, I find Bradley Cooper quite fascinating because he is so nakedly ambitious in a way that would be described as hugely thirsty. And yet he seems to be from his sort of days starting on Alias and then through Kitchen Confidential, he is, you know, truly loved in Hollywood. He seems to be really beloved. And yet if he was a woman, I feel like if he was as nakedly, if a woman was as nakedly ambitious as this, they would be slated nonstop. Whereas I find the fact that, that Cooper isn't called on this quite fascinating. And I mean, this is, Maestro is a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. He, uh, it is a biopic, so we start off with him meeting Felicia Montalegra, who is played by Carrie Mulligan, who was Bernstein's wife. So we start off in, he films it in black and white initially. It's all pretty much right up until the end sequence in 4-3 four, four, ratio. And we go through black and white of him meeting Felicia, falling in love, and then we carry it through until uh, her eventual death from cancer. It is a fascinating movie in that if you go in knowing very little about Leonard Bernstein, you will still come out knowing very little about Leonard Bernstein. It, uh, Bernstein Bernstein. It, um, it says very little about his professional accomplishments. I mean, West Side Story is sort of featured in a very brief sequence on the town. It's featured in a really interesting black and white ballet sequence. But he doesn't really tell the audience much about Bernstein. He's much more interested in the dynamic between him and Felicia and also in the element of uh, what it is like to be, well, not trapped because it was an agreement that they, it was a marriage they both agreed to, but effectively a performative marriage because it doesn't shy away from the fact that, that Bernstein is, is bisexual. Uh, Bradley Cooper has far more chemistry with Matt Bomer in their very brief scenes together than he does with Carey Mulligan. And it's all about how do you live your truth? One of the best sequences in it has Maya Hawke, who is, she probably isn't too old to be his daughter, but she certainly, she sort of feels a little bit too old to be playing the the role in this particular sequence in which uh, he has to lie about the fact that he's been with men because she's heard rumours and... You know, when she says she's so incredibly relieved to hear that, you can you can see in Cooper's performance how utterly heartbroken he is and having to live this duality. And you have Kerry Mulligan having to cope with the fact that Felicia only ever had some of his attention, but not all of his attention, because she could never have all of him, because she knew from day one that she wasn't purely where his interests lie. Uh, it has... Two of my favourite sequences of the year, one of them, which you can just go and find on YouTube, the real one, is of Bernstein um, conducting Mahler's Symphony in Eli Cathedral, which is a six-minute sequence, which Bradley Cooper, being Bradley Cooper, trained for years with compose, uh, with conductors to do. He is on the recording as conducting this. Uh, it is a phenomenal sequence. It is also a bit of a cheat, I say, because, of course, all the best sequences in it are all about the music rather than the performances. But it is an absolutely astonishing six-minute sequence. And actually, my favourite sequence in it is a very brief one right at the end, which shows Bernstein in a gay club, just enjoying himself, having living his best elderly life. And it's just a really 
lovely sequence of pure joy. Um, Cooper is fantastic for all of for all of my comments about his um, ambition. He is good. He is very very good. He is a probably I think a better director than actor. Throughout this, you just know that he is acting all the way. He's got the prosthetic nose and everything else, but he's still very good, very moving. Carrie Mulligan is great. I prefer it when it moves it on a bit. The original sequences are very like that. Cooper's watched Brief Encounter on a roll just over and over and is trying to ape the dialogue, but not quite. It's all like everybody's in their very best old-timey radio music voice and saying sentences which simply would never say in real life. (laughs) The whole dialogue is like that, and it's... When it moves on a little bit and he's a bit older, it's interesting. There's a beautiful sequence where we've obviously got this amazing New York apartment where they have the Macy's parade outside and Snoopy passes by. You've probably seen it all over Twitter. It has some phenomenal visuals. I think he is a very, very, very talented director. As an actor, I can mostly only see him acting, but he is very, very good in this. He is obviously gunning for that Oscar. Oh, God, is he gunning for that Oscar? He's doing an entire promo tour with Bernstein's children. Uh, he's doing the whole thing. You know, it's it's a great film. It's perfect perfect for this time of year. You can put it on, and even if you're not that invested in the character or that invested in the, the, the musicals that he, he made or, or his life, has the most stunning music. It really does have the most beautiful music. And the Marla sequence is extraordinary and absolutely virtuistic. Mm. So... It's uh, it's two hours long. Again, as with all these films, could have had a bit of judicious cutting. And as always, some of the more interesting stuff, Sarah Silverman, Matt Bomer, do not get enough screen time. But it's uh, it's a very fine performance by Bradley Cooper, I hmm. think. And beautiful, beautiful directing. Excellent. Um, changing the tone so much. Um, it's one I showed of Andy, uh, Godzilla Minus One. I just saw this today. And... Ostensibly, it's a remake of the very first Godzilla movie, but it's done with more humanity, more heart. Essentially, it takes the perspective of a suicide bomber, a kamikaze pilot who came back when he shouldn't have. He's riddled with guilt, mainly because he came back when he shouldn't, but also because where he landed was on this this island in the middle of the Pacific, where um, a diminutive but probably the most terrifying looking Godzilla I've ever seen absolutely ravages the entire group of uh, engineers and he has a chance to shoot his gun but he doesn't him and an engineer survive but that's it Uh, a few years well later I can't remember how long later it is he's basically trying to put a life together on Ginza he forms a family with a a woman who lost all of her family, a woman who's basically looking after a child of a dead woman, and they find this entire new family. So there's the building up of that narrative, and there's the emergence of a Godzilla who's had numerous atomic bombs dropped on him. It functions a lot like a melodrama, and the Japanese and Korean do very primo, over-heightened melodrama. This is basically like somebody snuck um, Train to Busan inside a Godzilla movie. With where it goes, yeah, it does. It definitely has. It definitely has some sequences, and I would be. I really after I because I as I said, I literally just saw it today. I'd be really interested to to read some some uh, Japanese takes on it because 
some of the scenes do have really heightened action, particularly between him and Naruto, uh, because he cannot move on from the war. He is stuck within it. He feels himself a coward, even though what he was being asked to do was fundamentally unreasonable. And he is, he cannot forgive himself for being very mm. human, frankly. Basically. Um, you've got a bigger... Big old chunky boy Godzilla with a with a heat heat ray. The sequence where he goes off in Ginza is horrifying. Yeah. Never been more horrifying Godzilla. And his heat breath isn't just sort of a gimmick of some guy in a rubber suit dicking about in a warehouse or something. It's atomic breath and it's just shocking, absolutely shocking what happens. Really makes him a terrifying character. It's just a wild animal, basically, not. Not some sort of a god complex creature or a savior. It's just a feral, very very dangerous monster rampaging. And I think it also it really employs the original score from the fifties original really tastefully. I was good. When that when that played, I got actual goosebumps. Like just hearing that music suddenly come come back again was yeah, it's really well done. It's called the people called it the best action movie of the year. I don't agree with that. I think it is just more of a straight up disaster movie, like an old fashioned disaster movie, and I think it does that beautifully well. I think it. I think if you compare it to some of the Hollywood blockbusters, particularly as I think this has been the year, unfortunately, where the the VFX people have had to work in horrendous yeah. conditions. Um, they've just completely unacceptable, underpaid, too many hours, and frankly. It has shown in the quality. There was a huge thing of Marvel throwing uh, the female head of VFX under the bus for it, quite inappropriately, it would appear. Um, But the Hollywood blockbusters this year, depending on what they are, have not been that great with the VFX. There's been some incredibly dodgy CGI. And this, I felt, kind of knocked knocked everything I've seen this yeah. year and from a, from an action Very point of view. Very minor budget um, compared six, to what yeah. those American com- uh, alternatives would have had as well. But it looks so... I mean, the destruction of Ginza, the the huge sequences with the destroyers, it looked incredible. I mean, I've been watching... Apple TV have got Monarch Legacy of Monsters, which is their TV spin-off of the two previous Godzilla films that, that they are doing in this particular Hollywood arc. And it's great. I really, really enjoy it because it has Kurt and White Russell. And but if you compare like the two recent Hollywood movies to this, I mean, there's just no comparison. There's just there's just not even remotely a comparison. This is great, and it's great because it is, as you said, much, very much focused on uh, the Japanese psyche after the war, the scars of war, and how do you? What is a man in post in a post war situation? How do you? How do you decide who is a man who has done their duty and who is not? I think it's really interesting. I would go on record. I don't rate a lot of the classic era Godzillas. A lot of people do. I don't. But I will go on record and say I think this is the best Godzilla movie they've ever made. So there's a lot of competition for that. Tonally different in every measure here is the final movie, um, Cat with Femme. Yeah. Very different, very different. So Femme is a feature debut by directing duo Sam H. Freeman and Ng Chong Ping. Uh, it is an adaptation and extension of their short film of the same name. And it tells of uh, Nathan Stewart, Jarrett, uh, drag queen Jules, 
who one night after working, she goes to a convenience store and she is she gets into a bit of banter with George Mackay's Preston and his band of toxic men and ends up being uh, assaulted outside outside the shop. Um, jumps forward three months later, Jules is very much not the vivacious character we were first introduced to is struggling with being Billy struggling with being queer um in in the wake of their attack so they go to a uh, a gay sauna and they see their assaulter they see Preston and they decide that they are going to exact revenge on on Preston uh in the form of basically trying to seduce him and out him and it's it's just an incredibly intense film that I foolishly put on at like ten o'clock on a Sunday evening, sort of sort of knowing what it was gonna be, but not to the extreme that it was. And I had to spend a good hour after the film finished just calming down. I was just sort of like sad, just like because it's a lot because it's the audience is in on Jules's thing. Preston is not a particularly nice guy. His friends very much aren't nice men. They are bigots, um, transphobes. They are very anti this. But then Preston is because it, it, it's this great thing of you've got Jules as the drag queen, but Preston is just as much in drag as as Jules is. Only his drag is macho man. Uh, macho, you know, bigot. And it's really interesting to see this because this film could very much be Preston's evil, Preston's wrong, you know, rah, rah, Jules. But the directors are really clever in the way that they do it and they kind of let you in to Preston so you do feel a little bit of sympathy for him but never too much. It's got this really nice yin and yang to it and, yeah, it's set in London. It's mainly at night. There's lots of neons. There's a great score. It's just incredibly tense what has been crafted here is a pretty engrossing thriller about identity which never loses focus on the main pair you've got nathan stewart stewart jarrett who conveys the determination of jules to take back his life and rediscover the powerful feeling that his drag persona gave him while on the other hand you've got preston who george mckay captures with a self-loathing lurking underneath as he's trapped within this friendship group driven by alcohol and toxic masculinity. Although a tenderness does rise as his facade crumbles away around Jules, but it does this astonishing thing where viewers are allowed to understand the character, but never he's never let off the hook for his violent actions. And it's just a really tense thriller about identity and the way we present ourselves to each other. And I think it's an... It's going to be an underseen film, but I really hope some of you give it a chance because it deserves some more eyes on it. I really want to say it's not showing anywhere to be at the moment, but I, I'm really intrigued by it. Mm. Yeah, same. I think George mm. Mackay never misses, in my opinion. Nathan Stewart Jarrett is also pretty great in everything I've seen him in as well. Mm. I'd just like to pop spotlights on another British thriller, albeit one set in america and one that you might not realize is a thriller for a while it's william aldroyd's eileen i don't know if anyone's uh, mike's nodding yeah not yet it is on the list 
It's very good. It's uh, adapted from a novel by Otessa Moshfeg, uh, most famous for My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which is an absolutely bananas book. Uh, I think I decided I wanted to check her out because I read an interview with her where she said, I'm very concerned about some of my fans online who call themselves sad girls um, <laughs> they're just books you know you don't have to take them last <laughs> uh, <laughs> well I, I think thomasin mckenzie's character the titular eileen in this is the ultimate sad girl i think uh, i love bottoms <laughs> i loved emma seligman's bottoms but th- those of you who want more weird awkward horny girl rep in cinema uh, should not sleep on Eileen. <laughs> she uh, is a, a woman in Massachusetts in the 1960s who works at a local prison doing a variety of menial tasks. She becomes obsessed with the new prison psychiatrist played by a platinum blonde, Anne Hathaway, who was introduced with like a long spiel by the prison's uh, warden about her past he mentions the university that he believes she studied at. I can't remember what it was. And Hathaway just exhales a cigarette and goes, Harvard. <laughs> him. And I, I just thought, what if this is the Anne Hathaway performance I've waited my whole life for? <laughs> and it is. It becomes well, a, a, a story of slow-burning obsession, a story of small-town repression giving away to something that you're never quite sure, is this going to be, you know, is it going to be Todd Haynes's Cavill? You know, is it going to be a story about sexual liberation and acceptance? Or is it going to be a more psychosexual, twisted thing? The moment when it plays its hand was a moment when I my jaw literally dropped. I thought, I did not expect this to go in the sort of weird Jacobean direction that it goes in. Although I've read enough of Tessa Moshfeg that it shouldn't have been a shock. <laughs> I, I hadn't read this one and I was delighted to see where it went. Uh, Hathaway is wonderful in it. I absolutely adore her and this is just the most arch and, and brilliant way of deploying her screen persona. I think Thomasin McKenzie is great as Eileen. Shea Wiggum plays her alcoholic father in one of those performances is that you can almost smell through the cinema screen. There's an actress who I wasn't previously familiar with called Marin Ireland, who gets an absolute showstopper of a monologue. I was about to say that, that that's just sickeningly brilliant monologue, yeah. You, you imagine if you're an actor and you get that on a page... I mean, no, it's horrible, but you must think, oh, fuck, yeah, people are going to remember that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, it's yeah. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I think it, it's perhaps a little predictable, but mm. not but not enough for me to, like, not enjoy it. Um, it's interesting, I think I read uh, or heard somewhere that the Tessa Moffat said, like, she feels the film is, a, is like, a, a better version of the novel, basically. Um, which makes sense because it was the first novel, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's a, it's it's got such a it's it's beautiful to look at. It's got such a mood to it. And even from the very beginning, like the like the way the titles come up is so sixties. It's so deliberately sort of throwback. Um, yeah, uh, and it, it feels like a lost film from the sixties in a way. And um, even like the sort of 
the yeah, the way it sort of ends as well. I think it's a lot of fun had with the fantasies that Eileen has and sort of how that sort of blurs with reality. I think it's done very uh, skillfully well. Um, yeah, it's really, it's yeah, it's really, it's it's good fun and yeah, yeah. Like I said, the the when the penny drops moment is a genuine like oh. Oh God! Right. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, it's yeah. It's a lot of fun. It's really good. It's, um, and it's uh, it's a guided Lady Macbeth, which feels like a, a oh. long time ago. Now is his uh, second film since then. Since then, um, so hopefully this means something more coming from him. I hope. Um, I hope so. Yeah. 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 Uh, a major director who had a film out at the back end of this year is Aki Karazmaki, uh, the international director whose name is the most fun to say. Uh, he had his new film Fallen Leaves out in December, which I know is a favourite for some people here. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed this one. Um, it's very funny. Uh, it's a very... Um, yeah, it's just a very funny story about two working class people who struggle to uh, find love. Um, kind of had a similar, uh, visually reminded me of uh, Robin Muller, uh, oh, especially yeah. his Wim Wenders work, uh, the Ger- like, you know, more Ger- like American friend era, like German work, especially in the way that it shot like uh, interiors. Um, and also Fassbender likes these like empty bars that just have like like very sparsely populated with very weird people. Um, this film is also very good at obfuscating obs- what time period it's in. Um, I mean, it's it has a time period. It is it's a modern film, but the film looks like it's from the 70s, um, which is a very strange uh, mishmash of... Mm-hmm. Like no one actually, they don't actually use like mobile phones or anything. And there's no sort of, if it wasn't for a few um, radio broadcasts and uh, cal- uh, shots of calendars, you you wouldn't know when this was set, I don't think so. And, and um, also a particular film that they go to see on a date, which uh, absolutely oh. knocked me out of my chair when I realized what they were watching. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to spoil it, but uh, yeah. real ones will know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And to be honest with you, now I want to spoil because the the, base, the director of the film they go and see this film also reminded me of his work. And yes, I know. Just leave it at that. I know that Graham is a fan, and that's all I'll say. Um, hey. So I think Graham would be uh, pleasantly surprised if he. I'm assuming you haven't already seen the film. I don't think you I have haven't. Seen. No, no, I must admit I haven't. Um, I think you'd, you would be pleasantly surprised at the cut to the film screen <laughs> the poster is them at the cinema and yeah. um it is funny to watch see what they're watching um, okay. and also they, they they try and meet at this cinema frequently and there's always there's very lovely posters including a perella food poster which i actually have in my living room so that was <laughs> oh, um, nice. very enjoyable to see a bit of home in the film um yeah i thought it was very very enjoyable very funny um i thought it was very interesting because I think a lot of films about working class people over the last 20 years have been quite sad and, and depressing. <laughs> yeah. Well, they can be. Um, and this is, is not at all. It, it very much is very realistic, but not miserable um, and treats the characters with a lot of humanity. Um, 
you know, it's, it has some pretty dark themes, loneliness, alcoholism, uh, poverty, but it never um, kind of uses them to em embrace uh, nihilism or miserable. Kind of, it's very fun and it's very lighthearted, but it doesn't ever forget that it's a film about real people. Um, and yeah, that was really good. Uh, really, it's coming to movie, I think, in a few weeks because it is a movie film. So oh, fab. if you missed it on cinema, I think it will be on there. Definitely checking that out. Yeah. Presumably within that pretty quick turnaround movie. So presumably before yeah. the end of the year, it'll be on there. So, and hopefully they put more Aki Kurosaki films on movie. I don't think there's anything else. I think his films are fairly hard to watch if you're not going to go on the, you know, the sort of more of a darker side of the legal <laughs> Um So hopefully they, they, um, this sparks a bit more of a sort of, desire to, to show his films on streaming so yes absolutely <laughs> simon's going out uh, simon oh. has what is that the yakis cavis mackie collection from artificial yeah. eyes good lord yeah, yeah I, I got this for christmas a couple of years ago Ooh, and nice. i've maybe watched about 30 percent of it because there's is that every quite, film? quite a lot in there yeah how many is oh god let's have a look uh, <laughs> <laughs> While Simon is counting that up, uh, <laughs> I actually oh, it's back. It's seventeen out. films. Oh, good lord! Um, I actually just had one more thing to mention for December mm. because it's not in my list, and um, I can't can't quite work out if it's had a UK release or not because okay, um, I googled it and it's actually coming out today. It was meant to come out today at Picture House uh, mm -hmm. in the UK, but it seems like according to someone I follow on Twitter that they cancelled the screening and refunded everyone their tickets. Oh. So I'm not entirely sure what happened with it, but it was yeah. uh, showing up by Kelly Reichardt, which is oh. an absolutely amazing, wonderful film um, that hopefully does actually see the light of day. I'm not, I'm not sure if it actually did come out or if it didn't, I don't know, but it's not going to be I, my it, list because I don't, I can't it's... clarify, but it's very good yeah. if it has. <laughs> so, if it's had a UK release, I have not uh, noticed it, and I keep my ears to the ground with Kelly Reichard because I love her. Yeah, it definitely did have a release because someone I follow had tickets for it, uh, and it seems they got their money back straight away. So, not sure what's going on with that, but mm. I think it gets a Blu-ray release next month anyway. So, okay, it's coming out at some point. But um, yeah, I mean, again, great film. But just thought I'd give that special mention, as it is a. <laughs> Maybe a December release, a December yes. unrelease or something. <laughs> well, we're going to look to the future at the end because uh, we've got a film that is unreleased in the UK at the time of recording, but it will be out by the time you listen to this episode. Uh, it's Raging Grace. Yeah, I was very cheeky putting this on. <laughs> uh, but I, 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 saw, I think I saw it was being released at the end of the year, so I was like, okay, that's going on. I was, oh, yeah, so I was looking to see a screener of this um, just before its Fright Fest premiere where it got standing ovation, which apparently is very rare thing, actually, at Fright Fest. Um, so, yeah, so, so it's a horror film, but it's, it's, it's as I think Vincent mentioned, it, the term like social horror, and this, I think, fits into that as well. It's about a Filipino mother and daughter who are basically sort of, she works as a sort of a cleaner at various uh usually white uh, rich houses and she gets offered a job at, the, at another one where the where uh, she's met by the niece whose uncle oh, sorry who's yeah his uh, niece whose relative is 
uh, old man sleeping upstairs, not to be disturbed. And what happens then is, is this big old empty, big old empty looking house, um, but she's still expected to clean. And when meanwhile, she's trying to sneak her daughter in in her suitcase and trying not to get her daughter discovered because uh, she doesn't want to give a bad impression. And it's then slowly things start to unravel and secrets start to come out, and it becomes this really devastating take on colonialism and immigration and really unpicking uh the sort of the sort of immigrant experience in britain um uh it's 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 on the nose in many ways but i think it's it feels very uh honest and it's great and it's also genuinely effective horror films are really genuinely unnerving moments and also some really funny moments of the child Who's who can't understand why she why she has to stay in her mother's bedroom and so tries to sneak out and the mother trying to hide her and and it, it sort of flips between those tones really skillfully. Um, it's a feature debut from the director whose name I annoyingly can't remember now. Um, I'm not going to try and pronounce names because I'm bad at it. But this was. I feel a bit sad that Liz isn't here because I know that she is so so passionate yeah, it, about this it's, film. Uh, Paris Zarcilla. Am I getting his name right? The writer director. Of one that tore the house down at Fright Fest, I understand. But this... To, to be honest, we were drunk in a casino at that point. But yes, <laughs> oh, okay. we understand that it did. We had both seen it before. We understand we, that yeah. it did absolutely yeah. tear the roof off the place. People were crying. Uh, I haven't mm. seen it, so tell me more. And this is part of a rising tradition of movies that have been dubbed uh, nanny exploitation, um, in which it talks about the experiences of people who come over to certain countries as an immigrant and work in less than great occupations, cleaners usually. I think the difference here, I mean, imagine if I was, let's just explain it, a lot of the nanny exploitation movies are set in America with American circumstances and there's a lot of nuance that you don't quite pick up on. But because this is about Britain, it's about the British experience and you know, how British people deal with immigrants. I think there's a lot more that we can understand on a sort of day-to-day basis with that. It, how can I word it? It's just sort of emotional. It's very, very emotional. It's from a very personal stance from the writer-director. And it's all about the child, really. It's sort of fighting for the soul of the child, and I think that's what makes it work so much. It's like a mother-daughter relationships, father-daughter relationships. There's a lot of good ones this year, and this is just one of the many. And how it ends is particularly beautiful. It's just a simple sort of folk song from um, the Philippines, and it's the most perfect way to end this movie. You get so many Disney movies or whatever where they end with like a sing and dance number, it just doesn't work. But here, it's just such a perfect way to end this story of discovering what being a Filipino means. And yeah, it just it works. It's it overused trope the nanny exploitation thing everybody's doing it it's kind of like rich people are actually satanists or whatever it's one of those sort of bullet points that a lot of movies are using but i think when it's in the right hands and it is here it can be really quite tragic and emotional yeah it's the fact that he like she has a daughter but they're undocumented and so her daughter's a secret so she's literally sneaking the child in and like some of the conditions that like her daughter has to live in and she has to like you don't want I mean you do want kids to be quiet because you want like peace but you don't want a child to have to be quiet because of the circumstances they're in so it's this really tragic thing where this little girl is growing up having to be a secret um which is just awful and I interviewed that little girl at 
than the Fright Fest media wall just through tears because she is so good in the film and she was so polite and so sweet. Mm. She's like eight years old and like already a complete professional. And I'm not surprised that the Fright Fest response was so emotional because you could feel it as soon as they all walked into the foyer, you could feel that emotion. And then I just think it just fed into, into the film and in the Q&A. And I think it ended up getting a standing ovation, which is only like the third in Fright Fest 25-year history, um, which is... Ridiculous. People don't like to stand up at Fire Fest. Uh, so the fact that they stood up for <laughs> the fact that they stood up for this, which is you know kind of a quite genteel horror film in a lot of ways, is is really is like it's really heartwarming in a way. A lot of the horrors sort of through dreamscapes and quite malicious intent, but none of it's really acted on. It's the suggestion of what could happen and what has happened before, more than sort of traditional horror sort of beats. But yes. It's well worth uh, checking out when it comes uh, when it's released at the end of the year. It's a uh, it's a really it's a really it's an important film, but it's also it's one that is just very effective at getting its point across and and using the genre really well. It usually, you know, it's it's a proper it's a proper horror film. Some real creepy moments in it. And it's yeah. It's and it, 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 you're rooting for these this mother and daughter pairing who the daughter is realistically annoying and irritating and constantly <laughs> mischievous, but it's still very charming and. Um, and there's times when they're sort of put pitted against each other, and that relationship is used, and that sort of you know the mother daughter relationship is used against them. And uh, it's really, yeah, well worth checking out. It's a, really, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big, it's a big hit of fright fest, and I think it's been getting very glowing reception so far. So yeah, highly recommended. Before we do the big reveal of what our top tens are, does anyone have any uh, films from festivals that people should look out for next year? I know we've mentioned Raging Grace and maybe showing up if it's not out yet who knows it shows uh, up if it's uh, there. <laughs> but yes does anyone else have anything they'd like to throw in vincent yeah um i attended a grim fest back in october and something that there were several things from there that i would um recommend but one i will particularly highlight is give me an a uh, this is an anthology film a, ser- a collection of short films from a range of different directors uh, with a number of quite prominent stars. And it is an insightful and righteously angry anthology that came out um, in the aftermath of the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the United States. So no prizes for guessing what that A stands for. Um, And it deals, it's satirical, it has um, body horror, sci-fi, comedy, um, that multiple genres and it's political it's very politically aware and it's got some powerful and timely messages so i'm not entirely sure where um if when or indeed if it's available but give me an a is one i strongly recommend okay anyone else uh i've got a few i can i'll try and rattle through um there's where the devil roams which is a new adam's family film no not that adam's family um who did um they did hell better <laughs> but they, they have a new carnivalesque i think it's out in america um i don't know when it's actually getting a uk release but hopefully uh soon carnivalesque weird black and white uh oddity which um i very much vibe with um there's a great thriller called red rooms um a spanish one sort of about like i'm picking true crime someone who basically is obsessed with a true uh, with a criminal who's on uh, trial. Uh, it's very 
very disturbing film. Um, it's also, and another disturbing film was The Coffee Table, which, which sounds like a lovely uh, lovely title of a film, but it <laughs> has a horrible thing that happens about 10 minutes in, and then you're just sitting with the character who has done the horrible thing while they're trying to cover up the fact they've done a horrible thing. So it's like a farce gone really horribly wrong. It's probably the most stressed I've been in a, in a long time. It's an unbearable experience in the best way. And God, yes, I, that um, film was... Wow. Yeah, it was also a grim fest, and I think yeah, it was, there was a lot of hype going in, and then a lot of people coming out just going absolutely you know. grim. Uh, yeah, it's brilliant. And then finally, uh, there's a film called Monolith, which again is out in Australia because it's an Australian film starring um, oh, I've forgotten the name of the, act, the lead actress from Evil Dead Rise. Um, again, sort of true about a sort of true crime podcast that finds these mon- these appearance of these strange black bricks that seem to be appearing, um, and so mostly sing it's mostly her and like. Uh, in in this room, gradually recording his podcast over several months. Um, it's more interesting than that sounds, and it's more visually dynamic than you might think. Um, and it goes into it's a very strange sort of almost Twilight Zoney sci-fi mystery source uh, film, which I really really liked as well. So worth checking out when it comes out. James, yes. Yeah, so I went to the Film Bar Festival and I caught their opening thing with film, which was Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things. Oh, and yeah. So. If this came out in this year, it would have been in the top half of my end of the year list. I absolutely love Poor Thing. Imagine My Fair Lady crossed with Frankenstein, some touches of the island of Dr. Moreau, and a little smattering of Under the Skin. It's exceptional. And I really can't wait to see it again. And you all should see it because it's probably the funniest thing I've seen all year. And Mark Ruffalo is an absolute steam stealer as this absolutely pathetic little man. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen it as soon as I can. Inject that into my veins, please. Yeah, Yeah, they've really been teasing it for a while. I I, I, I feel like we should have got it by now, but uh, January is, is such a such a tease. Yeah. And uh, there's all of the films. So, um, Naomi, running down your top 10, 10 to 1. <laughs> I should just grab it and re- remind myself. So, my top 10 would have featured most of the films that are unfortunately not out yet. But in terms of release date, my number 10 is John Wick 4. Number 9 is Anatomy of a Fall. Number 8, Killers of the Flower Moon. Number 7 is Maestro. Number 6, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Number five is Evil Dead Rise. Number four is Dungeons and Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves. Number three is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Number two is Barbie. And number one is Oppenheimer. My top ten is Typist Artist Pirate King. At nine, Eileen. At eight, Ennis Main. At seven, because it is cinema, Taylor Swift, The Eva's Tour. At six, Pearl. At five, Oppenheimer. Four, naturally, Barbie. Killers of the Flower Moon. Two, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. And my number one film of the year is Polite Society. So let's take it round the table. James? Okay, so my number 10 of the year is Killers of the Flower Moon. Nine is Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Yes, Scorsese has been usurped by the Shrek spinner. (laughs) (laughs) Eight is Femme. Seven, Nimona. Six, Women Talking. Five, Next Exit. Four, Oppenheimer. Three, Past Lives. Two, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And number one, Anatomy of a Fool. 
Hmm. Excellent. Cat. Uh, number 10, Suitable Flesh. Nine, The Artifice Girl. Eight, Past Lives. Seven, Infinity Pool. Six, John Wick 4. Five, Fair Play. Four, The Passenger. Three, The Creator. Two, Saltburn. And Femme is, is number one. Nice. Mike? Yeah, so I've got number 10, Grace. Number nine, Oppenheimer. Number eight, Talk to Me. Number seven, Anatomy of a Fool. Uh, number six, Barbie. Number five, How to Have Sex. Four, still a Michael Jox, Michael J. Fox movie. Uh, number three, Marcel. Uh, I can't remember the rest of the title. Marcel, the shell with shoes on. Thank you. It was literally just said a minute ago. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> number two, How to Blow a Pipeline. And number one, All of Beauty in the Bloodshed. Lovely. Oliver? Yeah, so mine was uh, Any's Men at 10. Uh, Knock at the Cabin, nine. Fallen Leaves, eight. Then uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, seven. Asteroid City, six. Five, Unrest, four. Shrank, Lorcan, Pacifiction at three. A Fire at two. And then Claire Denise, The Stars at Noon as my number one. Yes, and then my top ten at number ten is January. Nine, Killers of the Flower Moon, eight. Raging Grace, seven. Pearl, six. Evil Dead Rise, five. Eat or... Uh, four, their clone to Tyrone. Three, Polite Society. Two, Talk to Me. And number one, Godzilla minus one. Simon. So number 10, we've got Godland. Number nine, Javan. Number eight, Bo's Afraid. Number seven, Dream Scenario. Number six, Smoking Causes Coughing. Number five, River. Number four, May December. Number three, Anatomy of a Fall. Number two, Killers of the Flower Moon. And that means it is good old John Wick Chapter 4 at number 1, which I can't <laughs> believe it's held that spot for nine months <laughs> and it's still the absolute champ. And finally, Vincent. I'm going to cheat and I'm not going to say 10, I'm going to say 12. <sighs> for this reason. Hold on. <laughs> on the 12th day of Christmas, the movies gave to me 12 spider verses, 11 talks with me, 10 baby brokers, 9 tar compositions, 8 holy spiders, 7 rides of joy, 6 past lives, 5 salt burns, 4 anatomized falls, 3 flower moon kills, 2 highs from Barbie, and the theories of Oppenheimer. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. The voice of an angel, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I hope you realise we're all doing it like that next year. Oh no! Speak for yourself. <laughs> I'm busy. Raise the standard. Um, and after this episode, uh, we're taking a little break throughout January because this is a lot of podcasting. That's happened throughout December, and we need a little bit of a break. So we'll be back um, in a few weeks as normal with Robert Mitchum. Thank you for tuning in. On Pop Screen, we will, of course, be back with a regular episode looking at pop stars in the movies uh, in a fortnight's time. But for now, uh, just tell the listeners a bit about where they can find you, James. Okay, so if you want to find me, I'm on the various social medias at RoddersJ04. That's spelled with two Ds. Um, my best place to find me is either on nerdly.co.uk or on the reviewingrodders.co.uk. I post my reviews to there, um, both those sites. 
So, yeah, if you're not sick of me, come check me out. Mike? Uh, yeah, probably best place to find me is uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Autistic Horror, where I do the blog Autistic Guide Through Horror. I'm also on Letterboxd um, under Mike Leach, I think. Yeah, uh, mostly on Twitter and Letterboxd. Uh, my Twitter is Oliver T. Parker. I can't remember what my letterbox name is, but it's the link is in my bio on Twitter. So there you go. You can find me on X and Instagram and Letterbox Simon Ramshaw, S-I-M-O-N-R-A-M-S-H-A-W. And I'm currently writing for The Geek Show and Asian Movie Pulse. And Vincent. You can find my, me as well as James on our podcast, Invasion of the Poddy People, which is on the Not Just for Kids movie club feed. If you want to find me prancing around a manor house in my birthday suit, then search for Dr. Gain, that's D-R-G-A-I-N-E, on Instagram, Letterboxd, X, Blue Sky, and Threads. And you can also find my reviews on The Geek Show, as well as the Critical Movie Critics, and commentary on my blog, Vincent's Views, where I also post links to my various podcast appearances. And on some of those, I sing too. <laughs> so yeah, that's 2023. Feels good to have that one wrapped up. Uh, we'll be back in a fortnight with more pop screen. But for now, it's goodbye from me and everyone else here. See you later on the dance floor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> feel the that's a Salford music cue, I believe. <laughs> I, I, I'll I'll catch up with it. See you later, guys. Uh,